Welcome to From Rewatch with Love, a James Bond cinematic rewatch podcast. My name is Graham Stark, and joining me as always is Matt Wiggins. Hello! And today we are looking at 2008's Quantum of Solace, the second Daniel Craig movie released only two years after Casino Royale, and while not originally intended as such, a direct sequel to Casino Royale. But only barely. <laughs> Like the actual sequelized components of it are like right at the very beginning and right at the very end and serve mostly as a bookend of the actual story that's taking place in this film. But the actual story is almost not a real story because the sort of real story of the movie is everything that's the sequel and the story of this movie that isn't the bookended parts is kind of fluff i guess yeah i mean the, like there's a bond movie that takes place in here that isn't a sequel to casino royale <laughs> kinda in the sense that like you could cut all of the casino royale accoutrements from it and it would narratively function as a bond movie like a bond movie storyline secret organization exists and wants to do an evil yeah it's just not maybe the greatest example i think do you know why it's both at the same time a sequel and also kind of barely a sequel. Not really. Like, so I know this movie came to be during the writer's strike. Yes. And so functionally, they filmed significant portions of this movie basically without a script. I recall there being interviews with Daniel Craig in the aftermath of this movie coming out and him talking about what a nightmare working on this particular movie was because he would like show up to set and actually be writing his own script pages for scenes. Yeah. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade were back and they did a draft and then just like Casino Royale, Paul Haggis did his draft of it. I failed to mention previously that Paul Haggis, by the way, the creator of Due South <laughs> and co-creator of Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> He's done a lot of stuff. Anyway, yeah. Paul Haggis turned in his draft of the script days before the writer's strike. And so it wasn't final. And so the rest of the script was, yeah, it was put together by Daniel Craig and director Mark Forster. And Craig said that he will never do that again. Yeah. A good call. Because <laughs> <laughs> he found this to be a very stressful production. Yeah. As I recall, this was the movie that spawned the first round of Daniel Craig hates being James Bond and, and who are they going to cast to replace him for the next Bond movie rumors? Because he talked about how miserable this experience was. And of course, the press took it and was like, Daniel Craig doesn't want to be Bond anymore. That was such a massive and perfect illustration of don't just read the headlines. Because yeah, <laughs> there was the story of like, Daniel Craig says he would rather kill himself than play bond again and it's like whoa geez okay and you then read the actual quote and he's like we've been working on this movie for two years and it was six months of production and if you asked me right now to turn around and go back out tomorrow and film another one then i'd geez i'd probably kill myself rather than do that yeah but at no point did he say that he would leave the franchise in that interview. Like the, if you read the full context of all of his quotes, he's talking about how he's literally just come off of this grueling production schedule and feels tired and needs a vacation <laughs> and, and 
they took the quotes completely out of context and were like, yeah. he's so angry. And it's like, God, stop. Yep. I don't know. It It's very reminiscent to me. This is like local comparisons now, but very reminiscent sort of of like the press treatment of Roberto Luongo as the goalie for the Vancouver Canucks. Oh, right. There comes a point where the press reporting on you has spoken negatively about you or how happy you are on the team or, you know, how happy you are in the production and who's going to replace you while you're still there doing your job. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that like at some point that well is like the publicity around it has got to become so poisoned that you're just like all right fine <laughs> yeah i don't want to do this anymore and then the then it's like oh we predicted it we knew this was the last one we knew he was on his way out uh <laughs> It's so weird to have this completely original story follow and serve as a sequel to Casino Royale. And as I mentioned, but I wasn't clear about, much of the making it a direct sequel was added quite late. Interesting. Yeah. And as you and I have teased for many, many episodes, <laughs> I, I don't think it's great. It, last episode, I mentioned that I remember my reaction coming out of the theaters. I remember right. being at Silver City in Victoria, and my yeah. reaction coming out of the theaters after seeing this movie is, if that had been the first Bond film to follow Die Another Day, we would have all thought that was awesome by comparison. But because it's following <laughs> Casino Royale, it sucked. Yeah. I don't think it sucks as hard as I thought it sucked in 2008. <laughs> but I just think it's sort of, eh? Yeah, I also came to this one with a predisposition. I have fairly long maintained, and like I recall the last time I watched this movie, I was like, this movie actually kind of rules. Like it's got problems. It's like far from a perfect film, but it, but it's like this movie is actually like a pretty decent Bond movie. So I came into my rewatch of it for the podcast being like, all right, I, I remember this being pretty good. I remember this movie getting a worse reputation than it deserves. Mm -hmm. And my reaction to rewatching it was like, huh, it has some things I like. And there's like components of it that are good, but this is almost unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> So like we'll get into it. I think I I think my overall on this is that it's eh, it's fine. It's an okay Bond movie. I think the story of it, which we'll get into, I think the actual story of the movie is totally serviceable at worst, right? Serviceable, I think, is about where I fall on it. Yeah. yeah. The story is fine, but there are some things that hold back the execution of this movie in a way that that really, really frustrated me on this most recent rewatch. And like, as I say, I remember you having that reaction to the film because I'm pretty sure we saw it together when it was Probably. in theaters. And I don't know, I always felt softer towards it. And mm -hmm. tonight, after having watched it on Sunday, I was like, oh, man, maybe I was wrong all these years. Maybe <laughs> this is actually just a bad Bond movie. <laughs> So director Mark Forster, who prior to this had directed Monster's Ball with Halle Berry, which was very well received, had directed Finding Neverland, which is kind of funny because it's like he directed Finding Neverland, which was about creating the Peter Pan mythos. And in 2018, he directed Christopher Robin, which was the Winnie the Pooh, but Christopher Robin's grown up right. movie. He's also directing a forthcoming Thomas the Tank Engine movie. Your go-to guy for directing movies about the creation of beloved children's literature. I guess. Yeah. He also directed <laughs> Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell, which I love. 
It's Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson. I honestly love Strangers in Fiction. Emma Thompson plays an author who writes about just like really put upon people. And Will Ferrell's character starts hearing Emma Thompson's character narrate his life and then realizes that he is a character in one of her books. But like they both exist in the real <laughs> world, but she's like writing his life. It's it's a really cool movie. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's one of those ones where it's like, Oh, Will Ferrell, the goofy guy playing a little bit of a more serious role, but it's still a funny movie. Anyway, it's worthwhile. I think he does a fine job in this movie. There are some editing things that I have personal objections to (laughs) that obviously we'll talk about. Apparently the editing was also very rushed. They had to like bring in an assistant editor and normally he takes like 14 weeks to edit his movies, Mark Forster, but they did it in like five because it was just really the deadlines or whatever. I'm not entirely sure, but I think he did okay. I think it's okay. I think the whole thing's sort of okay. I don't know. It it was made for the highest budget of a Bond film. It was made for 200 plus million dollars. Yeah. So like 240 million dollars and it did fine. It pulled in 600 million in its day. So yeah, you know, like uh, 725 today, like it, it did very well, but it had the highest budget. It's also the shortest runtime it's a hour 46 minutes which is funny because until specter casino royale was the longest bond right. film but this one it was like oh it's over that was quite digestible <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they wasted no time yeah one thing that i quite like that Mark Forrester did is that he's very keen on filming on location. And Mm. so they did more location shooting for this movie than like any other Bond film. And it's weird too, because all the locations and sets, there's so many more in this movie that feel unreal, like just sort of unusual spaces, like even MI6 Mm -hmm. and like certain, just like an office building is like, this is a very like not real space. You know, (laughs) there's just a couple rooms in this, thing that are like getting awfully close to liminal space meme <laughs> pictures and there's some real world history that inspired the plot in this movie but we don't really find out that plot we don't get the last shoe to drop until the last 15 minutes of the movie yeah. so i'm not going to talk about it until later <laughs> But I guess, should we start talking about the movie itself? I guess so, yeah. Unless we have any other film trivia or what have you to dig into off the start. I did notice, because I know that we failed to mention it last time, and it was even more true in this movie than in Casino Royale, but Daniel Craig's Bond, because we didn't do like a full-on breakdown of how Craig is playing Bond comparative to how other people are playing Bond, which we have done in the past. Apart from anything else, he is way more physical. Yes. Craig's Bond gets beaten up a lot more, but just like does a lot more with his whole body than any other Bond has. Yes. And it's generally speaking very good. Like overall, the action scenes are strong, but it's that's a big point that I was like, man, he just gets his ass kicked from hell to breakfast in every one of these movies. <laughs> He sure does. I like I like that. He's the rough and tumble Bond, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whereas every previous Bond, to a greater or lesser extent, has been like the gentleman Bond. This is the, the roughhousing schoolboy Bond. Yeah. During the course of this movie, he suffered an injury to his face, which required four stitches, an injury to his shoulder, which required six surgical screws, Ugh. and had one of his fingertips sliced off. What?! <laughs> It eventually grew back, like just a little bit of the, like he made a joke about he could 
become a criminal now because his fingerprint is gone. Just like, all right, then he took some beats. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Craig, power to him for what he's gone through in these movies because he's injured himself like multiple times, right? Like it's a running joke at this point that he injures himself on every set that he plays Bond on because didn't he injure himself? Like, didn't he injure himself during like break his leg or something during the filming of No Time to Die? Oh, probably. I, they, I don't recall they like offhand. Ca- they had to delay filming for a while. We'll have to look that up when we get there. But that seems to be a recurring theme with Daniel Craig's Bond. Mm-hmm. The beginning of this movie yeah. picks up, I want to say, minutes after the end of Casino Royale. Now, obviously, time passed between Bond recovering and what's happening now. So you have to assume that that time happened between Bond checking Vesper's phone in Venice. Then there was a big break in time, and then eventually he tracks down Mr. White, and we see that at the end of Casino Royale. And now we are minutes later. Yeah, I assume there's a difference in time of like a few weeks. I don't actually think that they are contemporaneous with the dates they take place necessarily. No, (laughs) but like MI6 is ready for everything that's happening in the pre-title sequence here, which only makes sense if there was a span of time. But that span of time can't have happened between the end of that movie and the beginning of this one. That span of time happened before the scene with Mr. White at the end of Casino Royale. Right, when they had time to like set up an operation. Yeah, so this movie starts with a car chase. There's this cutting back and forth between some wide shots of Lake Garda in Italy and very close rapid cut shots of close up on cars and the wide shot moves closer and closer to this tunnel and then eventually it sort of transitions fully into this car chase in a tunnel. This is a very this is 2008, right? This is a very born movie car chase. Yes. It's hard to get a grasp on geography. And like where things are and sort of what's happening. It's a lot of close, tight, rapid motion, quick cut edits that when I first watched it initially in theaters, I found very disorienting. I had a better handle on it this time and it's not Mm -hmm. as disorienting as I remember, but it's very stylistically different, at least at least for the first part. Once because there's a transition partway through once they get off the highway and move into this massive marble quarry where we start to get more wide shots and have a better understanding of like like where the cars are in relation to each other. Yeah. But the the initial moments of this chase are very stylistically divergent from most previous Bond films. Yeah. I don't I don't like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge fan either. I, I'm okay with it once it sort of opens up a little more, once they get to the quarry, but the the very, very beginning of it, especially as I mentioned some episodes back, Bond's in a dark gray car being chased by two black cars, or yeah. maybe they're all black, or it telling apart who is who is a real challenge for the first couple moments of this. Yeah, you pretty much have to be watching the hood ornaments. <laughs> it's the only way to tell. Bond is in his silver Aston Martin, and yeah. I think everybody else, I, I, I'm guessing here, but I think the front grille on the other cars are Alfa Romeos. I never would have guessed that, but there is actually a subtitle where the guy is like, there's an Alfa Romeo chasing an Aston Martin. And I was ah, like, oh, there we good. go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. But they've got the sort of like inverted teardrop shaped front ends. And so if mm-hmm. you're watching the front ends of the cars, you can tell. But the scene is just chaos in motion. There's no mm-hmm. like the geography. Even once it like they get out of the tunnel and it opens up, the continuity of geography between the, the areas where they're in doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. because they are in a tunnel running along the, the edge of the lake and then suddenly they're in a quarry at the top of a hill. It's just cause and effect has no meaning in this 
chase scene. Yeah. Things happen. <laughs> what frustrates me, I think, about this scene is like all the cool action bits, the things that in a typical Bond car's chase scene are the cool action bits. Car goes off a cliff or Bond gets his driver's side door punctured and has to react to it. Those are all things that any normal Bond movie would focus on. Like the impaling of the driver's side door. There should be, that's a comedy moment if you play it, right? That's a, mm -hmm. That is an opportunity for Bond to react and be yeah. like, whoo, that was close. And he doesn't. It doesn't even phase him, right? He he goes from like, okay, well, I'm thinking about driving to, oh, okay, now I'm thinking about driving in a way that will get this out of my car door. There's no character effect of it, but you don't get to, you don't actually get to relish any of the cool action in this scene. It just cuts away or it cuts in after the big explosion. And you just see a car careen off a cliff. They're here and then they're there. And then this car is backwards. And then this car is upside down and there's gunshots, but we don't know who's who. It's beyond beyond disorienting because like I watch it and I'm looking at it now and it's like I can follow what's going on in terms of the the narrative flow of the chase, mm. but it's just shots of cars. <laughs> like there's yeah. nothing cool happening here. It's just frenzy. Yeah. The best part of it is the camera coming in across the lake. <laughs> Cause that's a nice big wide sweeping shot. That's a really cool <laughs> shot. And then after the scene, after he's somehow isn't followed by the police, there's another really cool sweeping shot of the camera craning up and we see this wide shot of Siena, Italy. And it's, yeah. it's, it's another beautiful shot with, there's this on-screen caption of where it is. It says Siena, Italy. There are on-screen captions for locations throughout this movie, which I dig. I'm fine with that. Sometimes Bond films do it, sometimes they don't. The ones in this movie are all stylistically different depending on the region so they all have sort of fonts and design evocative of the area which i also kind of dig when it's when it's done right mm -hmm. this one only this particular one only i don't like because it's black and thin and it's kind of hard to read <laughs> This is the only one I have a problem with. It's just like a little like thicker weight font or just some different visual treatment I think would have been better. But yeah. Anyway, after that chaos, Bond drives his car down this very long tunnel and opens up the trunk of the car. And we see that in it is Mr. White, who's been in the car, in the trunk of the car for this entire chaotic chase scene. Yep. And I'm going to hammer them again for this. <laughs> Uh-huh. Because there would have been a way you could have constructed that chase scene in such a way as to provide any kind of danger around the car so that when the reveal of him being in the car, like danger to the integrity of the trunk. Right. <laughs> the whole thing is framed as just he's trying to get away, right? Like we assume he's mm -hmm. killed Mr. White and he's trying to get away. And it's like, oh, Mr. White is there. And it's again, there's a way to construct this chase scene that this reveal has more weight where Bond is doing things during the chase to protect his car in a way that we don't expect and and that isn't inherently obvious but plays into it it's like oh that's weird what what is he doing what why is this to actually or just have mr white like even further beaten to hell right it's not just he bond was driving recklessly but bond was driving recklessly and the whole time mr white was having the tar beaten out of him in the back because of how jostled the car was and they they do nothing with it it's just like oh he's there <laughs> yeah i want more particularly because it's the like the pre-title sequence of a bond movie yeah i want there to be a narrative arc to it i want there to be not just a reveal that's like oh okay that's cute in retrospect i want it to be like integrated with the scene in a meaningful way and it's super not 
<laughs> if they could have shown like danger to the trunk, maybe even the trunk like popping open briefly, but without showing what was in the trunk. Yeah. Right. So that like there's concern from Bond that there's something in the trunk that he needs to make sure stays safe. And then you then you find out at the end that it's Mr. White who's been in there the whole time. Right. That might have been interesting. Yeah. Like just anything to make it more than just a car chase that, oh, it turns out Mr. White was there, too. Yeah. And that's that's it. That's where it ends. Bond says, all right, Mr. White, time to go to work. And that's the end of the opening title sequence. It actually freeze frames briefly as the transition to the opening title sequence. Mm -hmm. Now, on a more positive note, at least for me, so we have an opening title sequence now, totally different title designer. This is by Effects House MK12, who has worked with Mark Forrester before. And the song is the track Another Way to Die, written and produced by Jack White and performed by Jack White and Alicia Keys. And I think this entire title sequence absolutely effing bangs every part of this <laughs> is terrific i love the visuals i love the music i love this yep yeah it is like straight up one of my favorite titles title sequences ever yeah i have always loved this song and i thought that it was such a shame that it got attached <laughs> to this movie because this is a modern live and let die like this is getting oh, like, yeah. current rock pop musicians who are excellent at their craft to do something that is new and fresh and interesting and different, but is still unmistakably James Bond. And yeah. I love the song. Yeah, me too. I also like, I really like the title design. The title design is great. The visuals, the typography, the way that the, the text reveals itself is so yep. good. It is definitely, it's a turn back to the traditional. It is. In terms of title design as compared to Casino Royale, which was yes. like pretty out there for a Bond title design. But this is no question at all that visually this is at least the best one, excluding Casino Royale because it's a departure, the best one since Goldeneye, at least. But this is the return to the classic. We've got silhouettes of women and Bond doing action things all sort of integrated and set against each other, unified by the sort of like thematic depictions of the locations and what the elements of the plot are going to be. So we've got lots of like desert and sand dunes forming the the curves of women and you know, bullets exiting guns to puffs of sand in place of barrel smoke. It's so good. <laughs> the song rules. The title design rules. It's so good. I'm glad you think the same. It's, it is unquestionably one of my favorites. I love everything about this title. Yeah. I, I was watching it. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is, this is great. And Kathleen came out partway through the movie and watched the back half with me. And then afterwards I was like, I need to show you the opening titles again and rewound and watched it again, just because it was so cool. Also. So the transition into it, I'm not, don't love the freeze frame, but they do this cool thing. So there's no gun barrel sequence yet. And mm -hmm. the opening title sequence starts with Bond silhouetted against a sunrise in a way that evokes the gun barrel sequence in a way that I think is cool. And yeah. the transition out from the opening titles is beautiful. Kathleen said the same thing. She was like, wow, that was a slick transition because it goes to... <laughs> a very close up of this flag and you don't know that it's a flag right away because the whole opening title sequence was the camera like swinging around a lot and so it's these shapes moving across the camera and then you realize oh wait hang on this is a flag and then it moves in its slow motion and reveals what's behind the flag like what the man waving the flag and you're sort of like oh oh we're here now you know it just I love that transition yeah and where we are now is the Palio di Siena 
known locally as Il Palio. This is a horse race that is held twice a year and has been held twice a year since uh, like the 14th century. Like this is steeped in tradition, this thing. And they actually filmed a lot of this, the exteriors anyway, some months before principal photography started because that's when it was happening. And ah. then they would go back to the same square months later with like a whole bunch of extras for all the close-up shots. <laughs> And just we're like, all right, we're going to put Bond here and we're going to put like two dozen people standing behind him. So it looks like a crowd, but the rest of the square is empty. (laughs) (laughs) But all the wide shots with the huge crowds and the actual horse races and everything were shot months before principal photography. Just kind of neat. That's how to do it. (laughs) Yeah. So under that square, or at least nearby or something, is an MI6 safe house where... They have brought Mr. White. Bond is there and M is there. And there's another guy named Mitchell who says he's going to go and check the perimeter. When he comes in, Bond is like, hey, Mitchell, what's up? You know, he's in there with with M. He's actually M's personal bodyguard. She gives Bond some more information on that boyfriend of Vespers that we mentioned briefly in the last movie. Mm -hmm. Because he was captured by this organization that Mr. White belongs to, whoever that is. And they were using him as emotional collateral against Vesper to make her do stuff in exchange for getting him back. His body washed up somewhere with his eyes and teeth and everything completely just mutilated m quips they expect us to believe that fish did this but then they've determined i can't recall exactly how they determined that it's not actually him i think they say it was just they tested his dna or something something like that yeah so he's alive somewhere but she says to bond you have to promise me by the way that you're not going to go and like do stuff because that's not the mission right now i'm just telling you this but that's over, right? You're you're cool, right? And he's like, yep, totally am, as he steals the picture of this guy from the dossier <laughs> without, without M noticing. So then they go and start trying to question Mr. White. M is very cold about this. She's like, you are going to tell us who you work for. It just depends on how much pain it takes before you tell us. He's very amused by this, actually. I love this scene. <laughs> Yeah, I love this scene too. I, I I really like the way that he plays this because he's like, it's amazing to me how little you know about us. Yeah. We're we're running around always worried that you or the CIA are looking over our shoulders and you don't even know we exist. You you don't know anything about us. This is hilarious. <laughs> The big point he makes is, he says, look, we have people everywhere. Isn't that right? He says to Mitchell, who then pulls out a gun, shoots the other MI6 agent there, tries to shoot M and grazes her and then takes off as Bond pursues him. And it's like, wait, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out later that Mitchell has worked for MI6. I think M says for eight years, five of them as her personal bodyguard. Yeah. And it's like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) this is this is very bad so then there's a oh gosh what a long chase sequence so there's intercut with shots of the horse race which is medium disorienting there's several scenes in this movie that i i don't love how they're edited this this one not as badly but it cuts abruptly back and forth between shots of the horse race and shots of this foot chase between bond and mitchell and I don't know. I kind of see what the intent is, that it's like energy and motion. I understand, I believe I understand, 
the intent and I, I don't know if it quite works for me. This one doesn't bug me as much as, as the one later, but it's just like, yeah. Eh. Yeah, I, I, I'm sort of with you. Like, I get it. It adds velocity yeah. to the scene, but it also just pads the runtime. <laughs> it does a bit. Like, it doesn't really feel like it's going for, or if it is going for a metaphor, it's a metaphor. It's a pretty weak one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While it does add energy to the scene, I would rather, I'm going to comment about this constantly, probably, as we discuss this. I would rather have a clean through line on the, the chase mm. so that we can actually see. We don't have to catch up with the state of the chase every time we cut back to it. I would rather just have a clean narrative through line on the chase to be like, okay, they do this and they go here and this guy does. All of the praise that I heaped upon the chase scene from Casino Royale. <laughs> mm. Right. Does not apply here, right? Every time we cut back to the chase scene, it's like, okay, what's going on? How close are they to one another? Where are they now? Oh, that gate, that portcullis just dropped in front of Bond. How did that happen? In the previous movie, it was like everything was telegraphed and you could see Bond calculating his next move as he moves into the construction site. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. I predict that he's going to go there. So I'm going to cut him off over this way. And you can see the thought process. It illustrates visually the thought process going through Bond's mind as he chases down his target. This is just Bond chasing the guy through a sewer as things happen. (laughs) The difference in quality of action scenes between the last movie and this one frustrated me enormously as I was watching this film. And this, this is emblematic of it, although not the worst defender. Yeah. And it's a bummer too, because there are so many more examples of Daniel Craig doing his own stunt work in this movie. Yeah. And and it's like, to what end though? Yeah. You know? Cause, cause you're right. Yeah. Every time it cuts back, you're like, wait, I'm lost again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tip a card here, but one of the, one of my major disappointments with this movie on rewatching it is in comparison to Casino Royale, we talked about how in Casino Royale, every action scene in Casino Royale delivers character. Every action scene in Casino Royale, we learn something about Bond. We learn something about Bond's approach to the job. We have a good narrative thread through the action scene that we can follow. There's ups and downs and the scenes come to a climax and we can, we get a good narrative beat out of it and we get pauses. (laughs) There are moments of rest in those action scenes which is where we get the like Bond calculating his next move or Bond exhibiting that sense of interiority that I that I talked about where like we get a sense of his his character or he's about to do something that's going to help him or he's about to do something that's going to amuse him later or we get a sense of who Bond is through these action sequences mm-hmm. in Casino Royale and we just don't get that here. Every action scene is just like chaos, 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 chaos. It ends. There's never that like good rise and rest. And like we pull back from the action for a moment to breathe and get a little bit of character interaction. It's just like bond his eyes on the prize until he wins. There's no humor. There's none of that kind of humor, the sort of wry, like, eh, I knew that yeah. would happen kind of humor in this movie. This is me getting on a sort of film editing high horse to agree with you, by the way. I'll, may I join you upon that horse? Yes, please do. It's very high. Yeah, you can do that kind of thing if you go all in on it, because there's a great example I think, from The Bourne Supremacy, which is the second Jason Bourne movie directed by Paul Greengrass, which came out four years prior to this movie. The car chase between Matt Damon's character and Carl Urban's character in The Bourne Supremacy on paper is unwatchable. It's just... (laughs) 
as we say, it's complete chaos. It's like the beginning of this. When I saw this the first time, I was like, they're trying to do a Bourne movie car chase, right? It, it, it's just shots of things moving and happening and, as you say, chaos. But there is a flow to it, and that car chase is all in on that concept. And it gets more and more intense in the way that the shots look and how they're used and how they're cut and how they're edited. So, like, you're not following the geography in that instance the editing and the cinematography is invoking this feeling of how the car chase is and then when it reaches its climax where one of the cars collides and stops abruptly and then the editing slows like it rests on a shot that doesn't have fast motion everything comes to an abrupt halt and there's this exhale that works like i love that scene mm -hmm. because of how it is chaotic and high energy and edited and shot with that intent right and this is not that this is like a half step between what you would see in a bond film and what you would see in a born film and it doesn't work here because that's not what this film is trying to be otherwise and it's not going a hundred percent in on that style yeah i i think i agree with you <laughs> i joke about the theater filling with the sound of a hundred people's buttholes unclenching <laughs> after that <laughs> chase scene like literally i recall people in the theater going oh after that car chase, right? Like no one was breathing for the last 30 seconds of that sequence. Right. A plus, very done well. I don't want every movie to be like that, but that no. was a very good example of it. Because initially, it's funny too, because like I came around on it while watching it. I was like, oh, this is a lot. This is really intense. This is hard to watch. Oh, I see what they're doing. This is great. <laughs> you know? Yeah. In Quantum of Solace. <laughs> Back to the movie we're actually talking about. <laughs> yeah. They transition up to the rooftops. They were they filmed this all on location in Siena. The center of Siena is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, like the town center. They were filming in the ancient, like medieval waterways underground, and then up on the rooftops, like with like heritage roof tiles that they had to be very careful. They had to like remove that, like move heritage ones and put in stunt roof tiles and everything. And there's some really funny shots in the behind the scenes of these enormous cranes. They had to get geological surveys to find out like where they could park the cranes so that they wouldn't be mm -hmm. too heavy to go through these tunnels that are underground right. so that they could put harnesses on the stunt performers and the actors and also run like fly cable cameras like the kind that run around nfl fields to film all this on location rather than filming it on a set at pinewood film studios once they get onto the roof and they're not editing back and forth between the chase and the horse race scene mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to follow because yeah. we're not cutting away to stuff and it's I think a much better chase scene. And there's a lot of moments where it's like, oh, that's actually just Daniel Craig literally leaping across <laughs> a, a, a road 25 feet in the air from a rooftop to a balcony and then down onto a bus. That's that's actually Daniel Craig doing that. Okay, cool. Yeah, you're 100% right. Once it transitions to the rooftops, it's it becomes a way better chase. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's one thing that I, I actually quite like that they do, which is the no look shot where there's like the camera is going along below the buildings and there's just this quick shot of like Bond leaping from one rooftop to another. And as he does, he spots the guy he's chasing and just takes one shot in mid flight, <laughs> aiming sort of like diagonally downwards and he misses. But like that quick little glimpse of a like, oh, you actually see he spotted Mitchell was fast enough 
to realize what he was looking at to react and take a shot in that moment of opportunity even though it didn't work out and it's like there cool we've got like a good thing happening that we can follow and aren't disoriented by i actually really like it's like a fraction of a second long but i like that little insert <laughs> <laughs> because of how good it is about like shooting this on location and having the actual actors do a bunch of these stunts i don't love the like one really obviously cg weird camera move cg stunt double bit where they fall through the glass ceiling of this rotunda yeah it feels very dated by its graphics which we talked about a lot in casino royale that they didn't do that and this is like oh that really sticks out as like an obvious computer generated sequence or at least heavily computer assisted sequence yeah this whole action sequence on the the scaffold is a real mixed bag mm -hmm. it does some things i really really like and some things i really really don't and it cuts between them <laughs> <laughs> there are a few shots in this where they're like wide shots on an actual scaffold and bond and mitchell are doing things to each other in a way that affects the integrity of the scaffold and like keeping guns away from each other that whole component of the fight is really good because it's super clear it's obviously real like there's an actual scaffold that they're on and doing stunts on it's shot in a way that's like really clear you can see both of them in frame you can see again cause and effect right bond knocks a plank out of the way and that causes a thing to tip which causes the gun to fall to a, a lower platform like all of those sorts of things are really good and then they they intercut it with like Here's a shot of breaking glass, and here's a shot of this cantilever mechanism swinging around, and these decontextualized shots of some piece of the apparatus moving. Just, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> why do you make it so hard for me to like you? <laughs> They, they keep applying this like we can do we can make it chaotic and, and give the audience the sense of how, you know, what a scramble it is for both of them. And it's like, no, I was getting that better from the wide shot. Just do the thing that lets me see the fight. Yeah. The climax of the scene is as Bond and Mitchell are both just barely able to scramble for their guns and Bond gets to his a second earlier or a split second even and then takes a shot and kills Mitchell. We don't see Mitchell die, but he kills Mitchell. And then he heads back to the MI6 safe room where Mr. White, of course, is gone. And then we cut back to London. Bond joins M and a forensics team at Mitchell's apartment where they can't find any evidence to link Mitchell to whatever this organization is. Mm -hmm. There's a funny exchange where M, who's super annoyed and hurt and <laughs> angry that this man who she thought she knew turned out to not be, she's found at least three Christmas presents that she's given him over the years. <laughs> One of which is an ashtray that she's holding and Bond just sort of mentions, I don't think he smoked. And so she just <laughs> smashes the ashtray. Uh, my favorite exchange in this is, again, M I love Judy Dench's M. Even in the, the less good movie of the three that she's in with Daniel Craig, her M mm. is always amazing. My favorite line from her as she's monologuing, and she's practically doing in this scene what we talked about again in Casino Royale with her attache, mm -hmm. where she's just monologuing and Bond is basically just letting her go. Yeah. <laughs> but my favorite line from this is, when somebody says they have people everywhere, you expect it to be hyperbole. <laughs> you don't expect them to actually mean it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Lots of people say it. Florists use that expl- expression. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. Yeah, florists. We then cut to a scene at MI6 with M and Bond being briefed by Tanner. I don't know what happened to Villiers, but Tanner is here now, and Tanner will be here for the rest of the Daniel Craig movies, played by Rory Kinnear. Tanner here also feels like he would be Q in any other Bond movie. Yeah, he does do a little bit of tech debrief stuff over the course of the next scene. There's another guy who could also easily have been a Q. Oh, maybe maybe I'm thinking of the the other guy. I'm thinking of the guy in the tweed jacket. Oh, no, no. That yeah, that guy definitely would have been a Q. Yeah. yeah. They said Q and Moneypenny weren't in Casino Royale because they weren't in the book. And then in this movie, there just didn't feel like there was a home for those characters. And so they just didn't add them in. But no, Tanner is the chief of staff and he'll be in the next several movies. He was also in 007 Legends. He was in Bloodstone, which was the Daniel Craig as James Bond video game. That's like an original Bond story. It's not based on a movie, but it's all the cast from the movies are like in it, which was an interesting choice. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Rory Kinnear is, uh, yeah, it's good. He does good stuff as sort of the long suffering chief of staff. Yeah. So they did find something in Mitchell's apartment. They found some money and they had previously microchipped did they say microchipped i don't see how that's possible but they did something to a bunch of lashif's money they tagged them i think that's all he says is we've tagged these bills yeah this was money that they knew that lashif would get somehow and so it's now going out through whatever the organization is called M is like well that's one bill the way that money travels around you might be able to find one of those bills in my wallet like this doesn't tell me anything and they're like ah well through this ridiculously over-involved microsoft surface technological (laughs) interface that we've created we actually found a big stack of that money and we can also trace it to this other guy who is currently in this hotel in this room in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, who's an assassin so that's the connection that they make from money that they found to this guy named Slate Bond now goes to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, as the on-screen caption tells us. He's going to find and question this guy at his hotel, which he does. He lets himself into the room. He is almost immediately attacked by that guy with a knife, and they have a brief tussle through this guy's hotel room that ends up on the balcony of the room with Bond using a chunk of broken glass to stab into this guy's leg you know, where the big artery is, mm-hmm. and then just holding him there until he dies of blood loss. M had gotten pretty annoyed at Bond for killing Mitchell, which was understandable for the audience perspective, because that was a killer be killed scenario. Right. She was like, great, you killed him. Would have been nice to question him, but whatever. Then she sends him to Haiti. And this guy, Bond could have tried to not kill him, but they make a point to show you that he is holding him there until he bleeds out and dies which will come up that's going to be a recurring theme in this movie yeah m doesn't like it this time either (laughs) she's pretty annoyed that bond keeps killing all their leads yeah he steals some of his clothes ties up his own injuries and walks out of the hotel on his way out he thinks for a moment he's like oh hey here's an idea and he has his hotel room key and showing that to the front desk by way of identification he's like oh are there any messages for me for 325 and she's like nope just the one message message about that briefcase do you want us to keep holding that and he's like uh no I, I'll, I'll take that now actually <laughs> which is great <laughs> yeah it's nice when there's still a little bit of spy craft in there yeah so he grabs this briefcase walks outside and immediately a woman in a tiny car pulls up and is like get in and he sort of looks around and goes yeah, all right yeah <laughs> I love it. It's a Ford Fiesta. 
Yeah, it's so small. As they're driving around, he pickpockets this woman's purse to grab her ID and try to find out, like, who she is. Who she is, by the way, is a woman by the name of Camille, played by Olga Kurilenko, who prior to this had not been in a huge amount of stuff. She was in that not particularly great hitman movie with timothy oliphant oh yeah a miniseries called secrets in oblivion with tom cruise yeah since then she's been in a variety of more interesting stuff oh yes i'm reading this list in the wrong order repeat <laughs> reading it in reverse date order <laughs> she was also in johnny english strikes again oh, yeah anyway she's quite good in this movie i like her yeah i think she's pretty good so they hop in the car or bond hops in the car they uh they drive around it's clear that she had a deal with slate she's you know she was expecting him which is why she pulled up she has hired him as like a geologist to gain some information the full details of what the information are we don't know but bond is just sort of going along with it to try and maintain his cover and get information she ultimately motions at the briefcase to imply that you know the information i want is in there he opens the briefcase revealing the documents that she's expecting she thinks and then he underneath them he finds a gun she's flipping through the documents and all the pages are blank and she's like what the hell is this and then he looks and it's a gun and a photograph of her and she's (laughs) like i think someone wants me to kill you <laughs> and then she pulls her own gun and starts trying to shoot him because because he's like, I guess I'm an assassin. Like, <laughs> it's really yeah. funny. So he ends up getting out of the car and she drives away. And then this man who's been following them on a motorcycle drives up to Bond and is like, you were supposed to kill her. What the heck? I like his quip. You know, I complain about the fact that we don't get the sort of private internal sense of humor depicted in this movie very much, but we do get quips. <laughs> I'm not head over heels over Bond's depiction in this film because I, I mm-hmm. think he's just kind of miserable most of the way through the movie and we like he's very surface level. And it like that's not faulting Daniel Craig. I know Daniel Craig can do this role justice because we just saw him do it and we will see him do it again. But in this movie, he's just steely and cold and we don't get any sense of the person under that surface, really. But the quips are good. (laughs) The guy says, you were supposed to shoot her. And Bond, just without missing a beat, responds, well, I missed and flips the motorbike out from underneath him. Well, I missed. Yeah, so he just steals this guy's motorbike. I like that he looks enough like Slate and that apparently nobody knows what Slate looks like. Yeah. So everybody just thinks he's this assassin. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he was there and he had the briefcase and, you know, it was everything was going as planned. Yeah. He gets a phone call from Tanner, who's walking around with M, who's looking for an update on Slate. And Bond's like, uh, nope, Slate was a dead end. And M's like, oh, my God, he killed him. <laughs> she just knows from that quip that he killed the guy. So Bond follows Camille down to the docks where she enters a secure area and she's very, very angry. And she goes in to talk to, I guess, the bad guy of the movie, by the way the movie presents it, Dominic Green. Yeah. Played by Matthew Almarek, who really wanted to have a thing. Like he says, can I have a, can I have a beard? Can I shave my head? Like I've got nothing, I've got nothing facially going on. And the director was like, no, no just you which i think was a mistake because he is not a particularly memorable bad guy no he is kind of forgettable he's sleazy like he's sleazy in the right way he is sleazy he put me in mind of largo from never say never again yeah i think that's totally a reasonable comparison to make yeah i don't have like an objection to him i'm not like man this guy sucks he's just 
eh, okay, sure. Yeah. Matthew Almerick, by the way, has an extensive IMDb page of, uh, I'd say, 75% non-English roles, but, yeah. you know, a fair swack of some, some other stuff. The relationship is quite something in this movie. <laughs> he, he's constantly trying to kill her, but also constantly complaining that killing her is going to make him sad. Yeah. That's where the relationship starts in this movie, because... The conversation that they have here reveals the fact that he was the one who put the hit out on her, hired somebody to kill her. And so she just storms up to his desk and he's surprised to see her alive. And she's like, what the hell, man? You just tried to kill me. And he's like, yeah, but I felt bad about it. <laughs> and now that you're here, I'm I'm even more sad because I think I'm starting to like you. Because <laughs> he's like, I knew there was a leak. I guess that was you because you were trying to buy secrets about the organization. And she's like, I was trying to buy secrets from this guy because I thought he was the leak and I was trying to help you. Come on, man. And, you know, so he's it's this very weird dynamic. As it turns out, she is indeed trying to get to this other guy. And he's like, look, I know that you're just trying to use me to get to this general. You know what? He's on his way here now. I'll introduce you. But yeah, it is like a very just sort of like, I could kill you at any moment. Look, here's a dead guy in the water. That was the leak. We found the guy that was the leak and I killed him and I'll kill you too. But you know what would actually be funnier is I'm going to introduce you to the general guy who's the guy that I know that you actually want to meet. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's very, very unusual. But yeah. yeah, he is definitely slimy and freaky in the right sort of way. But yeah, not particularly threatening. No, he's he's more like just sleazy and sniveling. And his ability to be threatening is derived from the amount of power he wields, not from any sort of like physical presence. Yeah, but not even like physical presence, like because not every Bond villain has themselves a physical presence, but some of them have like a gravitas to their presence where you can, you know, you feel that they sort of have no fear and they know the power that they wield and dominic green is just kind of like just like a very angry gerbil yes <laughs> but who has like an army behind him yeah while this is happening bond goes up to the gate and talks to the man at the gate and is like could you give that girl this business card please notes that he's being caught on camera and then walks away and then green's second in command with the worst hair imaginable what's this guy's name this terrible bowl cut elvis played by anatole taubman who was in captain america really he played roder in captain america Sure. That's a definitely a character name that I remember from Captain America. A quick pass across this guy's IMDb page. He is a working character actor. Holy moly. Very good. So he comes over to the doorman and is like, what's up? And he's like, oh, this, there was this business card. We get a look at the business card. It's a Universal Exports business card for a Mr. R. Sterling, which is a fake name that Bond has given before. Right. So this guy calls that phone number and then that allows Bond to track his phone. It's basically given Bond a handshake for he all the guy hears is like, thank you for calling Universal Exports. Please leave a message. And he just says like, okay, whatever, ignore that. So this general. Sorry, before we get to the general. Yeah. Because we're still in the scene. We're in the most important scene in the movie. No scene in this movie is more important than the scene where Bond answers his phone. You know why? Why? Because this is the provenance of sweeping guy. Oh, right. I forgot about sweeping guy. While Bond is checking his cell phone, in the back right of shot is an extra who is sweeping the ground on the docks, except that his broom is clearly like an entire foot off the ground. So he's just sweeping the air. 
forgot about Sweeping Gun. And if you have never seen it, you need to look for it. The I had the time code here a second ago. I think it's like 2612. That's where Sweeping Guy lives. Anyhow, keep your eyes out for Sweeping Guy. That is the largest, most lasting impact of this film, is that Sweeping Guy had became an internet <laughs> sensation. I assume he was asked to, like, not make too much noise and nobody Presumably. noticed. Yeah. So General Medrano arrives, played by Joaquin Cosio, who was the voice of Scorpion in Into the Spider-Verse. Oh. Amongst, again, an absolute litany of things on IMDb. Yeah. He's a general from Bolivia. And the agreement that he and Green come to is that Green is going to help him do a coup in Bolivia in exchange for a particular area of desert. And Medrano is like, you know, there's no oil there, right? Like we, we've looked, there is no oil in that part of the desert. Green is like, that's fine. As long as you agree that we get to keep anything we find there. And Medrano's like, okay, sure, idiot. You know, he's like, <laughs> all right, fine. On their way out, he goes, oh, by the way, I want to introduce you to someone and brings Camille and mentions to the general her parents, which were people that he knew and in fact killed when she was a very, very small girl. He introduces himself and is like, I was you know, so sorry about your parents. I think I was one of the last people to see them alive, you know, as if he wasn't the guy that killed them, you know, <laughs> assuming that she was too young to remember that it was him. Green says, you know what? Consider her a sweetener for this deal. And then throw her overboard when you're done. He doesn't say this to within ear, within earshot of Camille, but then they just sort of take her with them when the general and his men leave. They sure do. So Bond sees this happening. Then we get a pretty cool motorcycle into boat chase where Bond rides his motorcycle across some boats <laughs> and then just steals a boat. Bond rams his boat into the boat the general and his men and Camille are riding to get back to his much larger boat. She takes this as an opportunity. She's trying to kill the general. This is revenge for her. So she grabs this gun that she had hidden on her and is about to shoot him when Bond grabs her, knocking her gun into the water, gets back on the other boat and drives away. And she's absolutely furious. And they're like having a fight while Bond is trying to drive the boat to get them away from all these other boats that are now chasing at and shooting them. And she's profoundly capable in this scene, by the way, up until she gets knocked out. Yeah. <laughs> but she She's doing cool stuff with a boat hook and, you know, like holding her own insofar as one is able to do at the business end of a boat chase. She does eventually get knocked out by a boat, like mounting their boat and the hull clonks into her head and Bond eventually gets away. This is probably the most easily followed action scene. Yeah. Generally speaking, I, I quite like it. Yeah, this is a to perfectly serviceable boat chase. There's action on the boat. There's action between the boats. There's clear geography. We know what's going on. We know who's where. We know what the stakes are. We know where the threats are. Like, it's totally a fine boat chase. On the far side of it, Bond makes his way to a dock on well, I mean, the far side of the bay, I suppose, where there's a bunch of, it looks like, tourist boats pulling up at a resort or something. And he just carries her unconscious body and hands her to a porter and just says, thank you. She's seasick and leaves. Oh, right. <laughs> just leaves her there. It's weird. She'll sort of pop in and out of this movie. Like, she's basically out of the movie now until she comes back in later. Yeah. Walking around this boatyard, Bond sees that Elvis 
and presumably green are on the move and sees that there's a truck with its door open because someone was unloading something and just steals this truck. So he calls yep. into MI6 and asks Tanner to look into Dominic Green. He's like, you know, there's a lot of people named Dominic Green. And <laughs> eventually they figure out which Dominic Green. They send a picture back to Bond. And Bond's like, yep, that's the one. You know, let's find out a little bit more about him. Once again, M is like, hey, did you kill Slate? And <laughs> Bond like doesn't want to answer the question. And she's like, okay, well, don't kill this guy. <laughs> she's still completely on board is like he's it's obvious he has a lead and she wants him to pursue it but she's still annoyed that he just keeps killing people yeah and she's like hey call the cia about this guy let's check in and see if they know anything about him so they phone their contact at the cia and we see a call connecting to langley and we get the other end of that phone call which is cia official greg beam played by david harbour oh it is david harbour it is yeah he is so young in this <laughs> Except he looks, he just looked, so yes, Kathleen noted the same thing, is that he's too young in this movie to be David Harbour. Yeah, <laughs> a little babby David Harbour. Yeah, but he still has this enormous mustache, and it doesn't yeah. feel, it feels like he's too young to be doing the role that he's doing kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, he plays it really well. I like the character, the character's implications on the plot, and I, I just like his presence, but I, I didn't go to the IMDb page for this at the time, and I was like, that guy really looks like David Harbour, and he has a really David Harbour presence about him, <laughs> just by the way he plays it. If you're unaware, David Harbour, probably best known to North American audiences as Jim Hopper in Stranger Things. He was also Hellboy in the 2019 Hellboy. He's going to be in the upcoming Black Widow movie. He was in Suicide Squad. He was in the newsroom. He's been in a bunch of stuff, as I usually say when I look at someone's IMDb page. <laughs> Amusing connection, MK12, who did the opening titles for this movie, also do the opening titles for Stranger Things. Oh. Yeah. We see Greg sitting on a private jet with Felix Leiter, once again played by Jeffrey Wright. And M is like, yo, do you have, is this a person of interest to you? And he's like, nope, he is not a person of interest to us. You know, we, we don't know anything. You do whatever you want to do. Goodbye. And then we see that they're on a plane because Dominic Green is getting on the plane with them. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, that's weird. Yeah, I quite like the way that M responds to this as well because he says he is a person of no interest to us goodbye and hangs up and m turns to tanner is like he is a person of extreme interest tanner's like but he just said no 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 i called the cia and they knew to transfer me to the section chief in south america they're watching him why would they know to send me to that person yeah because she called and was like i'm looking for information on this and the woman she talked to was immediately like i'm gonna put you in touch with mr beam like no yeah. pause so m is like Oh, that's weird. Especially since he just lied to me. Yeah. And Felix Leiter is also there. So there's this scene where they're on the plane now where they show the CIA a photo from their security camera. And it's a photo of James Bond. Elvis shows it to Greg Beam and is like, yo, do you know who this is? And Beam shows it to Leiter and is like, you seen this guy before? And Leiter looks at it and goes, sorry, no. And hands the phone back. And Greg's like, really? It's James Bond. That's weird that you don't know that. Hmm. Because Greg is working with Green. Like they, they're, they're just completely out in the open about it in yeah. this scene. They're like, all right, so you're going to do a coup in Bolivia. That sounds great. The U.S. isn't going to do anything. We just want your oil. Sound good? Ka-chow. Right? Like it's very 
because like the US has kind of a bad history about that. And like when they publicly in 2002 were like, we would love it if if Venezuela kicked out Hugo Chavez. We would be very much, we would be in favor of that coup. Like, you know, <laughs> the US doesn't like hide these things, right? Especially in South America. And so, yeah, this the CIA guy's like, yeah, you go ahead, you do that coup. We're not going to stop you. We're going to come in for some oil afterwards. Sound good? Sounds good. Right. And it's like, oh, this guy's a sleazeball. Yeah. Okay. However, this moment, which is kind of a cool moment where he's like, geez, yeah, who is, I don't know, Lighter, do you know who this is? And Lighter goes, no, I don't. And he's like, really? That's weird because it's this guy that you should definitely know about, you know, to sort of like start casting some suspicion on Lighter who looks uncomfortable with the whole thing. There's no payoff for this. There's a little payoff for it. The, The only like, to my mind, the only payoff in air quotes is another scene where Greg is further suspicious. But like Lighter is never under any threat in this movie as a result of Beam being suspicious of him. Like sort of the three beats of that are Beam is maybe a little suspicious. Beam is more suspicious. Beam's been fired and Lighter gets promoted. Yeah. So that apparently originally Lighter had a bigger role, but as part of these like last minute rewrites, it didn't work out. And so that why that sort of got reduced. That makes sense. Yeah. Like it definitely feels like they could have done more with it because the the middle beat, especially. Yeah. (laughs) The middle beat, especially because we'll get there. But Felix goes to meet Bond and talk to him and warns him that there's like a hit squad coming for him and lets him get out of there and beam is like what dude what did you tell him he got away <laughs> you would think at that point there would be some conflict and there's really not mm-hmm. so we arrive now in Bregenz, austria green and elvis are dressed to go to the opera they sort of say goodbye to their cia friends bond is now also there having tracked them all the way to mm-hmm. austria which is pretty impressive considering they were on a private jet i don't know how bond got there so quickly but they did <laughs> and uh, yeah they're gonna go take in uh, the opera at this amazing lakeside exterior amphitheater yeah it's a real place too this location is incredible this whole scene is really cool <laughs> yeah just the concept of it is really cool and and the way bond sort of manipulates his way around it is really well constructed Mm -hmm. the production that becomes very actively edited into the movie over the course of the next scene or two is philip himmelman's 2007 production of puccini's tosca at the brigands floating opera stage on lake constance and with the like actual cast of the show in the because why not right there yeah they're there they know how to do it yeah yeah So Bond sneaks backstage, steals a tuxedo from a man of a very similar build. There's this shot of a really muscular kind of Daniel Craigie looking dude being like, where the hell is my tux? Like just standing there in his underwear. (laughs) There's no dialogue, but he's like looking around the dressing room. And then we cut to Bond in a tux. So he looks down and watches the sort of main lobby where everyone's hanging around and there's everyone has gift bags that are being handed out and then he sees one man walk up to the gift bag table and give his name and then the woman looks at his name reaches under the table for a different gift bag with a different color handle and hands him that one and bond is like now why does this random dude get a special gift bag that's weird so he follows that guy into the bathroom knocks him out and steals his gift bag and we see that what was in it there's a lapel pin with a q because it's nice for your secret organization to have good branding and <laughs> a bluetooth earpiece he leaves the guy unconscious in the bathroom and just breaks the handle off the bathroom door <laughs> 
So Bond lets himself up to the like back of this opera. So he's like watching from behind the set with this earpiece in. And what's happening here is a meeting. This is, I was going to say, it's like kind of like a Spectre meeting. In a couple movies from now, we'll find out that that's exactly what it is. But right (laughs) now, right now, it's a meeting of quantum. It doesn't stand for anything. This secret society is named Quantum. And the way that they're conducting this meeting is that they're having it out in public, out in the open. So there's members of the group here. They put in their little headset and then they're sitting watching the movie and then they're talking during the thing, figuring out like, oh, do you have this set up? Do you have this set up? Yes, I have these supplies. I'm taking care of this politician. You know, everyone's communicating. Green is up in like a special box watching over things, but everyone else is sort of down in the audience and we see intercuts of various people. Mr. White is there also. Mm -hmm. And they're all just, you know, sort of communicating about this. It is quite cool. I do, I do like the concept. Eventually, Bond can't get the better of himself and pipes up (laughs) and says, may I make a recommendation? And everyone looks around like, Who's this guy? So he tells them, I really think you people need a better place to meet. And then, of course, the less savvy among the organization, realizing that they've been compromised, stand up to leave. I love it. And Bond says, hey, where are you going? And start snapping photos. And sending the photos into MI6 for identification. I love that Mr. White doesn't move. Yeah. He just watches them leave and says to the person sitting beside him, who he doesn't seem to know, he just says, well, Tosca isn't for everyone, and watches (laughs) them leave. Because Mr. White is much smarter than most of these people. Yeah. So they manage to identify several of these people as like, you know tech CEOs, very powerful people, one of whom is like advisor to the prime minister. Pretty scary. Mm -hmm. There's an amusing little moment where Bond walks in from the back as some of them are leaving and ends up like face to face with Green in the lobby. And Green just looks petrified and then tells some bodyguards to go and chase him down, which they do. Of course they they do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then, then what happens... So then there's a another sort of like chase set to the opera music and it's like yep. a chase slash gunfight through the opera house as Green and his goons are escaping and Bond is being accosted by goons. And it's it's very stylish. I actually don't dislike this one, despite the fact that it's all over the place. There is literally zero continuity of location here. <laughs> it's like he's in a kitchen and then he's not in a kitchen anymore and then he's on a scaffolding and who knows where he is but it's all silent like there's no foley for the action that's happening it's just set to the music of the opera it concludes when bond makes his way up to the roof and is standing next to a door with his gun drawn and a man bursts through the door in chase bond is ready and stands there with his gun to the man's head he takes him across the roof and sort of like the spy who loved me holds Mm -hmm. him out over the ledge holding him by his collar and starts questioning him despite what you said i do not like this scene i don't like the action scene edited back and forth with bits of the opera because i can't follow what's happening like it's it's just (laughs) jarring it seems like i don't know it comes across as very like oh this will be so cool it feels to me like the editor trying to be cute that's fair completely fair i don't know that's i think they were like we have all these great footage of tosca but there's there's like close-ups to like the people on stage in the performance it's i don't know i mean you're right it totally does read like oh this will be so cool this one just it works for me better Mm, that's fair i feel like the move to just using the opera audio feels like they're committing to the bit in a way that some of the other ones didn't yeah right 
Anyhow, I don't actually remember how much info Bond gets from this dude. He doesn't. He asks him who he's working for, and the guy's like, you think I'm going to tell you who I'm working for? And so then Bond lets him go off the roof where he falls alive onto Dominic Green's car, and then Green's bodyguard gets out and shoots the guy and leaves him there. Specifically with the line from Green, is he one of ours? And the bodyguard is like, no, sir. He's like, well, then he shouldn't be looking at me. And he hides his face. And then the bodyguard gets out of the car and executes the guy. Which gets back to M as Bond shot the guy and threw him off the roof, which is not what happened. But as far as M is concerned, this is Bond killing another lead. Specifically, this guy is a bodyguard of the aide to the prime minister. Yeah. So he's a member of special branch, meaning like a fellow agent. Right. Which M is not happy about. And it even gives Bond a moment of pause when he's like, oh, crap. You know, even on Bond's face, he's like, I didn't mean to hurt, you know, one of our brothers, I suppose. Not right. really the same, you know, not not like a fellow MI6 agent, but like, you know, broadly speaking on the same side. Yeah. I guess it's not necessarily implied that the bodyguard is dirty. No, because Bond was just shooting people in the middle of an opera house. <laughs> he was going through the restaurant. Fair enough. I mean, it is implied that the assistant to the prime minister is dirty, and this guy is the bodyguard of that guy. And so, like, that raises some questions as to what the allegiances of this agent are. Mm. But I guess it's it's strictly speaking, he is not the the guy that's necessarily dirty. Although he didn't, when questioned, he didn't volunteer any information about who he was working for. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, yeah, all right. M and Tanner freeze Bond's credit cards. When he tries to book a flight to Bolivia, his credit card gets declined. And so he goes like, oh, okay, right. They're frozen my cards. And then takes his card and is about to leave, but then turns back around to the woman at the desk and goes, hey, in a moment, you're about to get a phone call. Could you tell them I'm heading to Cairo? Just like very like, can you help me do something hilarious is the kind of <laughs> demeanor he's getting across. And, you know, because it's Bond and he's charming. The woman's like, yeah, all right. You know, <laughs> she's like, yeah. sure. <laughs> So the phone rings as Bond is leaving, and then we cut to Bond on a boat crossing a lake in Talamone, Italy, where he arrives at this phenomenal lakeside villa in which he finds Rene Mathis. Who's not super thrilled to see him. <laughs> Would you be? I mean, Mathis says as much in the next moment. He's like, he's talking to his partner, his, I don't know, mistress, his lady friend who tries to offer them wine and he says no wine for him and she's like what why and he's like this man had me imprisoned and tortured and you want you want me to serve him fine wine and she says you only buy cheap wine <laughs> besides <laughs> sure he had you imprisoned and tortured and then they found out you were clean and then they gave you this villa and a bunch of money so really you kind of owe him <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I just like Mathis a lot. I think Mathis is great. I like Mathis too. Eventually Bond sits down and just pours himself wine. Yeah. Initially Bond is like, hey, I just, uh, I need a passport. And Mathis is like, what, what, why are you asking me about that? What, what? What actually is it? Why, why are you actually here? And Bond gives him a printout of the photos that he took at the meeting. And Mathis says to him, you should destroy these. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically just asking for money. Yeah, he, he wants Mathis's help. Just looking for money and help. <laughs> yeah. He says, it's kind of funny, but you're one of the few people that I think I can actually trust. And he says, do you want to come with me? And Mathis sort of considers this. And uh, I don't, I really don't like the edit out of this scene. Oh. 
it's a shot of Mathis considering going with Bond. Right. And then the woman, Gemma, who's tanning, says, I need your hands on my skin. And then she turns over and then there's a shot of her face realizing what Mathis is considering. Very quick cut to a shot of Daniel Craig downing the rest of his wine and then cut to a close-up shot of the photo of Vesper and her boyfriend in a different location and then cut to a wide shot of that new location, which is the first-class cabin on an airplane. But in the matter of like two seconds, it's just Mm -hmm. this really rapid, jarring edit that I don't like. (laughs) Yeah, I can see why. (laughs) I'm allowed to not like it. It turns out that Mathis did, in fact, decide to go with Bond because he is also on this first-class flight where Bond is awake in what is clearly meant to be nighttime because all the lights are out and Mathis is just waking up. And hey, you know this is the first time where we've ever seen James Bond actually drunk? Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. We find out how much it took to do it. (laughs) Six (laughs) Vespers. Even Mathis comments, impressive. Yeah. Mathis asks what he's drinking, and the bartender (laughs) responds. He's like, well, it's uh, three measures of Gordon's, uh, three of vodka, one of Kina Lillet. And Mathis is like, Lillet. Like, oh, okay, it's 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 this thing. All right. So we get a little character interaction between Mathis and Bond here. Mathis basically just trying to get Bond to go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, he gets up. He's like, clearly you're troubled. You're having a lot of drinks. What's wrong? Do you just need to drink yourself under the table? You know, they they have pills for this now, you know. I have all kinds of pills. Some of them make you forget. Then he just turns around. He's like, all right, I'm I'm going to go to sleep. You should try to do the same. And, and it looks like Bond is giving up the booze for the evening and going to try and get some sleep when we cut to Bolivia. Yes, we arrive in La Paz. They're met at the airport by an embassy agent named Fields, played by Gemma Arterton, who is rocking the like tall boots Macintosh jacket and no other visible clothing look yeah and says I am to meet you here and make sure that you go home so come with me please and we'll get on the next flight out Bond just sort of ignores this and is like okay sure whatever hey when is the next flight she's like it's tomorrow morning he's like okay cool well let's go hang out then yeah we got lots of time yeah yeah (laughs) we never find out in the movie But the character's full name is Strawberry Fields, which is meant to be a Beatles reference, of course. Yeah. And she's embarrassed about that. She just says her name is Fields. Bond inquires more. And she's like, nope, just Fields. So obviously not happy with her parents for that. Right. And I don't know, man. I have no beef with Gemma Arterton, but like this character sucks. (laughs) She does a bit. Like this character doesn't have any bearing, does not need to be in this movie. She's here to die later. Yeah, and to be the Bond girl, like the the one that he sleeps with. Yeah, because like he won't won't actually sleep with Camille over the course of the movie, which is a first for the franchise, being that Camille is the main co-star. Yeah, but like I don't know, like her character is that she's just like an embassy clerk, like, and I think she's playing that okay, but I mean, she just gets taken advantage of and killed, like. <laughs> It's yeah. basically all there is to her character. She has one bit where like she goes on a mission with Bond and helps, but she exists in the film briefly. I like her presentation. I feel like she wasn't done justice. Yeah. Justice for Strawberry Field. <laughs> I, I just feel like she was only in the movie so that there was someone to sleep with Bond. Yeah, I agree with you. Which is not a great reason to have a whole character. It's also like, to me anyway, it feels totally unearned because like... They go to the hotel she has picked out, which is 
not a particularly great looking hotel. And Bond is like, what's what's with this place? And she's like, it fits our cover. We're teachers on sabbatical. And he's like, no, this is terrible. Get back in the car. Let's go. And they go to this like phenomenally ridiculous hotel. And he's like, see, this one also fits our cover. And he goes up to the front desk and says, we are teachers on sabbatical and have won the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy goes, cool, con- congratulations, here's some amazing rooms. They go inside, and Bond is like, hey, I'm having trouble finding the stationery. Could you join me in my bedroom, please? And then they just have sex. Like, yeah. they, it's just like, they haven't really had that kind of chemistry up to this point, and it's just like, boom, into it. I mean, if you they, they show you her reactions to the things that he's doing along the way. She is clearly taken with this dashing, charming, you know, agent who is a double O and therefore has that sexy bad boy appeal, breaking all the rules, using cheesy lines, and they sleep together, and then she feels bad about it. She's like, I can't believe I let myself do this. (sighs) I get it, but it truly does feel like Bond is just using her as a, like, plaything. It's kind of mean. Yeah, it is. I don't know if it colors the whole movie into, like, the movie is mean-spirited, but... The treatment of this character in particular is mean. Yeah, especially since I feel like her death, which is later, is like inconsequential to the story and is only really there to like be a fun callback. Fun callback. (laughs) Yeah, a grim callback. Yeah. I agree with you. Her character is not great. I... I am I'm I'm waffling a little bit because I I like the Bond characterization that is delivered mm. through his interaction with her in the movie. Okay. Except that it's too samey to what he did to Vesper in Casino Royale. It's basically the same joke and it's partly I really like Daniel Craig and he knows how to deliver this joke and partly I'm so starved for characterization of Bond in this film that anything we get feels like a drop of water on parched lips but we are teachers on sabbatical and have won the lottery is it's really good <laughs> that i agree with you that that is very very funny absolutely so i i have a hard time coming down too hard on it and also like i don't know i as i say i i like the presence of fields in the movie even if she is done dirty by the film as a whole i I just i like her character okay she adds like a touch of cute humanity to this movie that's not in it (laughs) boy you that's not wrong it's a good point mathis has been setting up a meeting with a friend of his who's a colonel of the police force here and he arrives in bond's room and tells him that bond has an invitation to dominic green's like green project fundraiser gala that they're doing so he and fields head over there all dressed up nice and mathis says he'll meet them there later and dominic green talks about you know he, he delivers this like speech about climate change and how we must be shepherds of the earth and how this is what the green project is going to do and it's all very important work and please give me money and he's about to get some money from a wealthy benefactor when camille acting drunk i think yeah. shows up just appears reappears camille's back in the movie and is like oh you should tell him about how you bought all of that part of the desert because they're talking about a specific area that has been causing a drought and green says well i mean obviously the country doesn't consider you know these politicians don't think that if you cut down all the trees then of course all the dirt will wash away and then you've ruined the water table and then and then camille shows up and is like you should tell him about how all of that happened after you bought the land (laughs) 
<laughs> and and he's like, would you excuse us for a moment? And the man like is putting his checkbook back away again. And Elvis is like trying to smooth things over. And while that's happening, Bond is now meeting with the colonel of police who's like, Mathis has told me everything. You have my support and the support of my police whenever you need it. Absolutely. And Bond is like, well, that could be very, <laughs> that could be very useful. Great. Mm-hmm. Green takes Camille over to a balcony ledge. And basically like in the same way that you said earlier is sort of like, you know, I could just throw you over this balcony but i wouldn't of course haha unless like he fully pulls a saved your life on her as he like pushes her into the railing and the the railing gives way and then he like grabs her so she doesn't fall it's so yeah it's very very weird like why camille keeps getting close to this guy is weird too like well we will find out that she is even more capable than we have initially seen because she is also an agent she's bolivian secret service secret service of the incumbent government so she's trying to prevent this coup from taking place but at the time it's sort of like why do you keep hanging out with this guy Get yourself a better not boyfriend. Yeah. Lighter is also at this party. I think Beam is there too, but like Lighter sort of sees that Bond is there and doesn't do or say anything. Yeah. Bond inserts himself into this conversation between Green and Camille and is like, oh, she and I were just leaving. What does Green say to him? He says some real creepy things. The The primary one is that she won't go to bed with you unless you give her something she really wants. And warns her that everything Bond touches seems to wither and die. Yeah. Yeah. As they are leaving, Elvis follows Bond and Camille down the stairs as Fields is walking towards them and Fields trips Elvis and sort of plays it off like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And that's the last we see of her alive. Yeah. Bond asks Camille to show him whatever Green is working on. It's called the Tierra Project. Tierra, as in the Earth Project, basically. Yeah. So they get in a car, they start driving, and they start being followed by two policemen on motorbikes. They get Bond to come out of the car, they ask him for his papers, and then they make him open the trunk. And Bond even says to himself, now why would you be asking me to do that? Opens the trunk up, and inside he finds Mathis, very unconscious. They ask him to get Mathis's body out of the trunk, which he does, and then they yell, he's moving, and they shoot. Bond uses Mathis to soak up the bullets basically and then he kills the cops and mathis is now dying in the middle of the street which sucks because i like mathis me too i wish they had done something a little more with mathis dying like i wish that there had been a benefit to mathis dying just to mirror his line from casino royale of being dead doesn't mean you can't still be useful yeah i wish they'd given him that as a sort of final posthumous act for his character yeah because what ends up happening is he asks bond to not leave him he's like don't don't leave me because he knows he's dying he's like don't don't leave me here and bond just sort of asks him like is mathis your cover name and and he just nods you know he he doesn't doesn't tell him what his real name is but he's Mm -hmm. like yeah yeah you're never gonna know my real name basically is, (laughs) is the subtext and then he's you know talks about forgiveness you know and he's like forgive vesper forgive yourself and it sounds like he's about to say forgive me when he just dies and then bond throws him in a dumpster yep. to which camille says is this how you treat your friends and he says it's what he would have wanted <laughs> uh he says he wouldn't have cared yeah he wouldn't have cared exactly um and then he grabs his wallet and pulls the cash out of it yeah pulls the cash out and chucks the wallet and leaves him there so that's the closest we get to him being useful once he's dead <laughs> it takes like 40 bucks yeah yeah 
We then cut to Bond and Camille, who's asleep, driving through the desert the next morning as M receives word that according to the Bolivian police, Bond killed Mathis and left him in the street. Along with two cops. Along with two cops, yeah. Which, I mean, Bond did kill those cops, but... <laughs> well, yes. That was self-defense. In the middle of the desert, Bond approaches a small airstrip and arranges to basically, like, buy a plane. I assume he rented it, but the guy's never getting it back. <laughs> yeah. Well, Camille asks him, he's like, how did you manage to get this? And he's like, well... He wanted you, but he settled for the car. Besides, he'll make way more money once he sells us out. Like, <laughs> like Bond knows how this is going to go. They haven't even taxied the whole way down the runway before this guy is on the phone. I love that shot of the plane taxiing, like heading for takeoff. And the guy is already dialing the phone. <laughs> yeah. So they're flying along. And this is where Bond is like, so Bolivian secret secret forces. What does he say? My sources tell me you're Bolivian Secret Service, or used to be. Yeah, and you infiltrated Green's organization by sleeping with him. And she's like, you got a problem with that? And he's like, oh, no. God, you don't even know who you're talking to. You can't imagine the problem I don't have with that. She points out there's a couple massive sinkholes from some kind of underground work that Green is doing on this area of desert that he owns, which is different from the area of desert that he's getting from the general as part of this coup. This is a different part of Bolivia that he owns. And then they're attacked by a fighter plane. They sure are. And this goes on for a while. They get they get attacked by a fighter plane for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Act three of Quantum of Solace, getting attacked by a fighter plane repeatedly. Yeah. Um, for like 15 straight minutes. I mean, it's fine. Like, it's a, it's a fairly entertaining little aerial fight. Do you know this is the only Bond film in which there is a foot chase, a car chase, a boat chase, and an air chase. <laughs> I didn't. According to IMDb, and, you know, it's user-generated, which means it's fact. Well, I'm glad we got that important stat covered. I hope my sarcasm comes across. That could be wrong, I, just <laughs> to be clear. No, no, it's on the internet. That means it's true. Yeah. Anyhow, you're right. This plane chase is basically fine. I'm not a huge fan of the way it's cut together. Again, I feel like the geography is a little tough to pin down and the relative position of the planes when they're under threat and when they're not. There's a helicopter involved, apparently, that shows up for like 30 seconds and issues an order and then is never seen nor heard from again. But it's fine. It works well enough. It gets to the point where they manage to take out the fighter plane through some tricky flying but like the the shot of it finally crashing is very just like very quick jump cuts explosion. Yeah. Again, it's the same sort of thing that you were talking about of sort of like, well, how did that actually occur? I'm sort of unclear. I do like that one of their engines gets shot up and Bond manages to fly their plane in such a way that the smoke from the engine obscures the vision of the other plane. Mm -hmm. But then when it does eventually crash, it's sort of like, boom. Yeah. And kind of, yeah. Don't love it. Yeah. But their plane is going down now because it's been... Shot to hell? Yeah, irreparably damaged. Camille gets a parachute on and then Bond, like, 
stalls the plane intentionally like flies it straight up in the air to give him enough time to like drop down the inside of the thing and grab camille and heave them both out of the plane with her having the only parachute and so they both fall can't quite reconnect with one another until they're below ground level in one of these giant sinkholes before the parachute finally deploys and barely slows their descent enough to allow them to live but they do live i like the concept of the the stunt where like Mm -hmm. bond just there's one parachute so he just chucks camille out of the plane and then leaps out along with her with the hope of being able to grab on before the parachute opens so he doesn't fall to his own death yeah i'm not crazy about how it gets assembled in the film but it's a neat idea Mm -hmm. so then we cut to m talking with tanner as Tanner is is talking about how the Bolivian police have found Mathis's body and are claiming that Bond shot him. And she's going into a meeting with a government minister and has to explain what Bond has been doing with the knowledge that Bond killed a member of Special Branch and has been murdering his way down the line of leads and did not return for debrief when ordered to. And so M is having to explain what's going on to this government minister while also sort of being harangued over the fact that she can't keep Bond in line. The foreign secretary is played by Tim Piggott-Smith, who I know I've seen somewhere before, so I'm very quickly checking his IMDb page. He's definitely one of those British actors who's shown up in lots of things. Yeah. He's also in some of those James Bond radio plays that Toby Stevens is in. Yeah. He played Creedy in V for Vendetta. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, he plays Pegasus, the head of MI7 in Johnny English. I don't know where I know him from specifically. He's just one of those guys. Yeah. Well, he's been in lots of things. Yeah. Anyhow, his role in this movie is to order M to call Bond off. He he delivers the message that Bond's mission is over. <laughs> And uh, and M is like, yeah, he's out of control, but we know he's following a lead. We know that this secret organization exists. We know that Dominic Green is a member and we have Bond in position to to deal with it. The foreign secretary is like, mm, nah, whether or not he is involved with a secret evil organization, his interests and ours now align. He's agreed to sell us a ton of oil. We need a ton of oil because oil reserves are drying up and the u.s is looking out for its own and we need to look out for our own call your man off which is a nice theory if she could get a hold of him because currently he's down a pit yeah where he and camille have regained consciousness and bond gets camille's backstory of how general madrano killed her family and set her house on fire while she was still inside earlier in the movie she's wearing a low-backed tank top and you can see she has a big burn scar across her back and so that's what that was from and they sort of have a bit of a commiseration about the concept of revenge she's like she's like hey, if you get revenge on your guy, let me know how it feels, okay? And then they start to leave. Bond notes from the rock that where they are at the bottom of this cave used to be a riverbed. And then they climb up this embankment and see this massive underground lake that's been dammed up. And they realize Green isn't after oil, he's after water. Mm -hmm. And all through the movie to this point, it has been talked about and referenced that Bolivia is experiencing a substantial drought. 
there's like a cab ride earlier where the the cabbie is talking at length about how like global warming is causing all the all the water to dry up and of course green's speech at his party is all about global warming and and the effects thereof his plea for donations were was about letting the water table evaporate and not caring for the results of that and so hmm this water being dammed up interesting so this is inspired by a very real thing. I mean, obviously global warming is real or climate change <laughs> is real. However you wish to word it, it's a real thing that's happening and people are causing it. Get into it in the comments. I don't care. But, <laughs> but what I mean is that this specifically is referencing the Cochumbaba water war, which was a thing that happened in Bolivia in 1999 and 2000, where they privatized the city's municipal water supply. It turns out the people of the city did not take particularly kindly to being charged corporate prices for their water. No doubt. Yeah, so there were massive protests, and eventually it ended up with the government reversing the decision. But yeah, that's the inspiration for Green's plan here, is that he's going to privatize Bolivia's water and, if you'll pardon the pun, soak them for money. And we don't even really get that that's the final thing until even later in the movie right now it's just like he's damming up the water why does he want all this water yeah bond and camille make their way out of the tunnel and to a nearby town which is in the midst of a drought they've run out of water there's like a, a very like look at the the human cost of this water having been dammed up scene as bond and camille walk through town looking beaten and dusty in their party dress and tuxedo as the residents of this little town are like trying to get their water tank to issue forth a few more drops between all of the residents of town in this dusty arid desert and bond and camille look quite moved realizing the sort of like scope of what has happened and then they board a bus and head on back to their hotel i don't love the montage it's pretty on the nose yeah i mean i i, I remembered it from watching it in theaters and i didn't like it then again softer on it now but still don't like it that it's like cutting back and forth between bond and camille making their way out of the the mine area essentially intercut with this thirsty village trying to get water out of their thing it's just i don't know it's something about the way that it's presented with the cross dissolves and everything it's just it it feels very like okay sure i get it yeah i have a hard time articulating why i don't particularly like it but anyway they get back to the hotel shades of die another day actually when they walk in looking like absolute hell and get funny <laughs> looks from other people the man at the front desk says, your wife left you a note, which I assume is meant to be Strawberry Fields left a note. Yeah. And it just says, run. And so he tells Camille, maybe you wait here. And she's like, okay. And so he heads up, opens the door, and inside are a bunch of MI6 agents and M. And one of them says, there's a woman downstairs. She says that this is not her fight. And Bond's like, yeah, that's true. Let her go. That's, she's nothing to do with this. So they do. And yeah, M is there. And she's like, so what the hell, man? <laughs> Also, you should see the next room. And he goes into the next room where Strawberry Fields is dead, having been drowned in oil as a message, I guess. It's, I don't know. I don't actually know why oil, like, because they thought 
that it was oil, but it's actually water. The reason that it's oil is, I mean, it's a striking visual and she's draped across the bed just like the woman who was covered in gold was in Goldfinger. So it's an explicit like James Bond, like, haha, get it reference. Yeah, it's it's clearly a callback to Goldfinger. In the scene, Bond, I think, even says that it's a misdirect because M is throughout the scene leading to the reveal of Fields. M is like, you've been called off. We're here to take you home. You need to debrief. You killed a member of Special Branch. You are off the leash and we need to rein you in. And that aside, the mission mandate has changed because our government has struck a deal with Green for oil. And so we can't have you killing him too. And Bond is like, well, there is no oil. And then that's when M like opens the door. It's like, really? There's no oil? You sure about that? <laughs> this is a funny way to confirm that there is no oil. This is clearly about oil. And and Bond is like, no, 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 this is a misdirect. They're trying to make you think this is about oil, but it's not about oil. And she's like, well, we can't take that on faith. So we got to take you in. And they do. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, I don't think that they needed this moment to like move the plot forward, which is why I just, I don't think that like, I don't think having Strawberry Fields be there just so that she can do the stuff earlier and then die by being drowned in oil I, I don't think it's useful i don't think that her character is useful to this story yeah no i agree with you like this is here as a cute goldfinger reference pretty much bond gets a little bit of comeuppance in this scene from m at least he gets dressed down for for sleeping with her his treatment of miss fields yeah yeah that's true m is pissed right bond says there's no oil and she says well you might like to try telling her that and then asks like why her like, why did you do this? Because she blames Bond for getting her involved. She's like, why Like, why did you do this? She's a clerk. She doesn't know any better. <laughs> you have your own revenge-driven backstory of going around and killing everything that moves. You had no business bringing her into it. And now she's dead. So, cool. You're under arrest. <laughs> and then, before Captain America made it cool... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we both went to the same place. <laughs> we get a scene of Bond in the elevator with three guys. It's a much smaller elevator and his hands are tied and he takes out three dudes in the elevator. It's cool. I, I like how when he gets to the bottom, the door starts opening and he's like, closed door, closed door, closed yeah. door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until he can like grab a gun from the guy and then he's like, okay, cool. Now I can leave. His escape from the hotel is neat, but I'm not sure if I like the escape from the hotel or if I just like the location. It's a cool location. The hotel is so visually striking that I like, I don't know how much of it is just, I like this location and their use of it or if I like what actually happens here. So anyhow, he gets off the elevator, walks around a corner where M is now leaving <laughs> and just walks up to her, no longer in the custody of the three men that she just left him with. So she naturally looks quite shocked and Bond rounds the corner and says, listen, Miss Field showed true bravery. I want you to note that in her report, but I need to see this through. Mm. And M says, there is a capture or kill order out on you. I can't let you do that. <laughs> Bond simply responds, well, I wonder who did that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, who put a capture kill order out on me? Hmm? M? Hmm? <laughs> so then, yeah, he like, he escapes the building and yeah. out front, Camille, who said she was going to leave, pulls up in a Volkswagen Beetle and is like, get in, mirroring the yeah. scene earlier with the, what was it, Ford Fiesta? Yeah. I mean, it was whatever the South American version of a Ford Fiesta is, but I'm pretty sure it was a Ford Fiesta in the North American market. 
Well, while this is happening, M is, of course, now running cover for Bond. Mm. I continue to really like the relationship. It continues to be very maternal, which I appreciated during the plane flight that Camille called him on. Because <laughs> mm. there's that exchange during the, the plane fight where he says, they tried to kill a friend of mine. And she's like, a woman? He's like, yes. She, she says, your mother? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no, but she likes to think so. <laughs> M bumps into Tanner and is like, I want you to find out where he's going and then tell me. And he's like, we've got agents after him. He's like, listen, he's my agent and he's got a lead and I trust him. So basically keep him safe. <laughs> yeah, I just checked. And uh, you know what they call a Ford Fiesta in Bolivia? What? Ford Fiesta. Very good. It's one of their most popular cars. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. We cut to lighter and beam sitting at the cia office the phone rings and lighter answers in spanish he says incan exports <laughs> which i i just love that like imports and exports is like the the cover that both mi6 and the cia use it's bond on the other end and he says you have got to find a better location felix even the cab driver told me like just where your building was he says you should just answer cia <laughs> right that was it yeah you should just you should just answer cia because like everyone knows where you guys are <laughs> anyway so he asks to meet him and then lighter and beam exchange glances so lighter shows up at this bar one of the first things bond says is like so how how much time do i have <laughs> right and he's like not long about 30 seconds probably and we see some shots of like a strike team loading up and getting close essentially lighter is trying to suss out like how much bond actually knows and if he thinks that bond can see this through before he'll actually tell him the truth essentially right he does eventually decide yes i'm gonna tell him what's up and he whispers where to find green in this meeting that he's having at this hotel in the desert and then says bond move your ass <laughs> and then the strike team shows up and bond takes off barely escapes there's a very brief little action sequence yeah it's pretty quick bond basically just running to the next building so that he doesn't get shot lighter goes outside and beam this is the conversation we mentioned earlier beam is like what did you tell him how what, what happened in there and lighter says i told him what we agreed on and that's it i think that's the last we actually see of them in this movie yeah i think so and then we cut to the desert this is another amazing location so in real life <laughs> okay yeah tell me about what this place is in real life yeah so this is an observatory well, okay, the hotel, the air quotes hotel, is the residence for astronomers or scientists doing work at the European Southern Observatory. Okay. Which is this amazing observatory installation in the middle of the Atacama Desert. Now, the Atacama, it's incredibly high, and it's the driest place on Earth. It has, as far as scientists can tell, it has never rained there. Huh. At least in its current geological state. And it's so dry that like bacteria doesn't grow there. At the beginning of the scene, there's a shot of like a lizard on a rock and that was not shot there. <laughs> Half expecting you to tell me they'd imported the lizard. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they did. Like the, the point is that lizard is not native to the actual area where the location is. Right. So maybe they brought it in or maybe they shot it somewhere else. But on the episode of Top Gear, maybe it was Grand Tour, but the episode of Top Gear where they go to the Atacama Desert, the joke that Jeremy Clarkson makes is that Richard Hammond is the smallest life form. 
<laughs> around because it's like <laughs> even like even bacteria doesn't grow in the Atacama. It's like it's it's just dead. Right. But it does mean that it's very high and very separated from civilization. So from horizon to horizon, it's just stars. Right. So it's a great place for an observatory. Yeah, that makes sense. And so this hotel that's sort of like built into the landscape is not actually a hotel. It's the residences of where people stay if they're working at the observatory right that makes sense you don't actually ever see the observatory in any of the wide shots because it's like on the top of a mountain the exteriors are doing a lot of work here in terms of trying to present themselves as a hotel because it does not look like a particularly i don't want to say scenic scenic is the wrong word but like the compound that they drive Mm. into looks very utilitarian even though the building itself is quite ornate the compound that it's on like the road and the gate all looks like an industrial complex yeah big time also why would you put a hotel in the middle of the desert (laughs) i don't know that's a great question i I don't know (laughs) so there's a very important piece of throwaway dialogue at the beginning of this scene which is that there's a noise a sort of a low noise in the background somewhere and one character says, what was that? And the other character says, oh, that's the fuel cells. This whole compound runs on them. They're a real pain in the ass, actually. Highly unstable. And that is the excuse for what happens at the climax of this movie. <laughs> at least they made one. It's pretty tenuous. <laughs> it's better than no excuse. It's better than no excuse, certainly. But it is still very silly. But more on that when it happens currently the two people there's like some guards and some hotel staff trying not to upset anybody but the main two people that are here right now are general madrano and the colonel of the police so even before mathis got to him he was already working for the bad guys and mathis going to him probably just sealed mathis's fate right Mathis being knocked out, put in the back of Bond's car, and then having Bond being pulled over by police who were waiting for Bond to leave was all because of this dude, so. The interiors here are gorgeous. Yeah, the interiors are very cool, yeah. Behind a rock at a distance, Bond and Camille are getting ready to make their way in. Bond gives Camille a little bit of advice and is like, now when you get a chance to do this, you're going to be, you know, adrenaline, it's going to be wild. Take a moment, take a deep breath. You only need one shot. You know, he's like, here's how you do a revenge. So then there's this like weirdly long people walking to the meeting montage. They got to fiddle their one hour and 46 minute runtime somehow, Graham. It's just weird. It's like these two dudes are sitting out in the balcony and then they're like, oh, green's here. And then it's just cuts back and forth between people walking upstairs and along hallways and stuff. And like on the one hand, it's like, sure, I guess this establishes more of the interior of the location. But you could have done that without like, ah. Let's move to the scene now and then like cut between these two groups of people walking. Yeah. The only thing otherwise that I think it helps establish is that the hotel is empty. Like it's just them there. They have the whole place to themselves. Yeah. And the poor staff member who's just just trying to get them a beer if they want it. (laughs) So Green shows up and gives the colonel of police a giant briefcase full of euro because the dollar's been dropping these days, you see. And he leaves. 2008 yeah and the general is like where's mine and green says well you got to sign this first so he does he signs the thing to give green control of the chunk of desert that he doesn't care about because there's no oil there and then green is like great now sign this one and madrano's like well what's this and he's like well now that we own 60 percent of the water table 
in Bolivia, this is an agreement giving us control over the water supply. And Madrino's like, this is twice what we're paying now. And Green's like, yeah, well. Sure is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eventually, Madrino has no option but to sign it. Which he does with some venom. He's not pleased about it. Yeah. No, that's Dominic Green's ultimate plan here is to gouge Bolivia for their water. It's a little underwhelming, I think. It's maybe. It's definitely evil. Yeah. <laughs> It, like, it's a specter plot. I believe it. This is what I was getting at when I was like, there's a totally serviceable Bond movie in here that's not a, a sequel at all to Casino mm. Royale. Is like, there's an evil organization that exists and one of their mid, you know, middle manager members is off doing an evil where he's extorting the ascendant general of Bolivia for control over 60% of Bolivia's water supply. You know, I expect to report to number one, my millions and millions of dollars in revenues each year at our annual Spectre meeting. Like, <laughs> it's a totally bog standard evil organization plan that Bond gets all up in and, and ruins. And that's fine. That works totally ir irrespective of the events of the previous movie. The fact that Bond found the secret organization is a sequel hook from Casino Royale, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> this yeah. movie still fundamentally functions without that hook. Mathis just has to be someone else. Yeah. Mathis doesn't even have to be someone else. He's basically Felix Leiter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just like, as you say, a perfectly serviceable Bond film. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it's anything to write home about in terms of, no. of like originality of plot or anything like that. But it, it doesn't strike me as like unusual. Underwhelming, I get. I guess it's evil. I guess. It's not like threatening the world with nuclear weapons. He's just extorting a South American country. But I guess it's evil. This doesn't seem like the kind of thing that MI6 would have stopped otherwise. A little bit. Yeah. Well, in fact, the British government is trying not to stop it. <laughs> Yeah, that, the foreign secretary is like, well, look, we need oil. Like, even though this isn't actually about oil, right? He's like, right. look, I mean, I get it. Like, sure, it'd be nice to not be absolutely craven bastards, but the world needs oil. So, I mean, I kind of understand where they're coming from. And it's like, yeah. oh, you, you suck so much. And Beam says the same thing to Felix, right? Like, after the meeting on the plane, Felix is like, are we really doing business with this guy? He's a slime ball. And Beam is just like, no, you know, you're right. We should only do business with nice people <laughs> <laughs> i mean given the choice i'd prefer it is very much like the only person that's getting in the way of this is bond and the only reason m has given him license to get in the way of this is because it's literally a secret evil organization that tried to murder her a few days ago so yeah. Like, it's not like he's acting on behalf of the government here. It's like, no, you tried to kill my mom, <laughs> so I'm going to piss in your pool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a weird one. Yeah. This is what we mean when we're talking about, like, the parts where the Craig movies falter is where they try to make Bond movies into a serialized continuity. Yeah. If they just doubled down on making this the movie and not hanging it on continuity with the previous one, that would have been fine because it makes it feel like this whole thing the whole thing with the the water and the coup and green and everything it makes it feel like this is sort of inconsequential yeah it's secondary to the plot line that was set up as the important one yeah but this is actually the plot of the movie <laughs> yeah so camille manages to get inside 
she sneaks inside the actual hotel area and is about to make her move as the general is trying to rape the hotel staff. And Bond gets into the hotel through the carport by jumping on top of the car of the colonel of police as he is leaving. He jumps on the hood of the car and says, we used to have a mutual friend and shoots him in the head, which I like. And then that car books it in reverse and slams into what we can only assume is one of those unstable fuel cells they lampshaded earlier because it explodes. And this building will not stop exploding for the rest <laughs> of the movie. It sure won't. This is comical how much this explodes and keeps exploding. And it's like, I know that you set it up with like, oh, you know, they're very unstable. And it's like, they're not that unstable. Like, it's just constant flames and explosions for the remainder of this movie. Yeah. So I got a question for you. Yeah. When you're constructing a residence in which people live... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Generally, there are two primary considerations when it comes to safety. Uh -huh. One is that it's not going to literally fall over and crush everyone inside. Yeah. What's number two? <laughs> that it doesn't explode. <laughs> More or less, yeah. Like, f fire safety is usually yeah. concern number two. The fact that when one tiny section of the building lights on fire, the entire rest of the building doesn't go up with it. Yeah, there's like no, no fire suppression at all. We see some sprinklers go off. Well, they don't do a damn thing. They sure don't. So I have I have some questions for the Bolivian fire inspector. So Camille breaks into the general's room and saves the poor hotel staff member who we presume escapes the building. We never see her again. No. And then more explosions start happening. There's an absolutely unnecessary bullet time shot of Dominic Green running away from an explosion that completely immolates Elvis. Just gratuitous bullet time shot. Yeah. With a whole bunch of glass panels exploding. And then the rest of this sort of climax is Bond fighting with Green while Camille is fighting with General Madrano. Matthew Almarek said that Green doesn't fight and is bad at it. And so I played it like... He's an angry schoolboy, like when you would fight in school. Yeah. Which definitely comes across because he's not he's not good at it. Yeah. But he's unpredictable enough because he's bad at it that he's able to, you know, get a couple licks in on Bond. This fight is actually pretty good. The way Green is portrayed here is really good. The action is like you can follow it. It's mm -hmm. it's fast and frenzied, mostly because, as you say, Green is just going to town trying to keep Bond at arm's length and get as many licks in on him as he can. And so, like, it works pretty well. Also, the props that they have Green using to hit Bond with really make me feel for Bond because he starts hitting with, like, a metal pipe, right? Yeah. And over the next three cuts, the pipe gets progressively, like, it starts out straight and gets progressively more U-shaped. <laughs> Yeah. As he's like bent it around Bond after hitting him so many times. And then he goes for an axe and is just swinging this axe at Bond like it's life or death, which it is. It makes for quite a compelling fight for the most part. Mm -hmm. There's a real audience cringe moment. <laughs> not For me, not quite as bad as the chair in Casino Royale, but where the fire axe goes in to the front of green's foot like you don't see anything because he's wearing his shoe but at the front of his foot gets like bifurcated by the yeah. fire axe and then the axe pulls back out and it's just like oh oh that would hurt so bad yeah. you know what would hurt even worse no any number of these other things well maybe not even worse but about the same amount what happens immediately after that as he falls off like a bridge in the hallway collapses and he falls off 
the ledge and Bond catches him by his hair and holds him like holds him over this gap by his hair. Now, this is a great moment, though, because what has Bond done with every other possible lead so far in this movie? Killed them. Yes. And he has every opportunity and the look on his face that he really wants to just let go and cast Green into this pit of flames. Yeah. And he hears a gunshot from where Camille is and wants to just drop this dude, kill him and go and help Camille. Especially as as Green twists the knife by like being dangled by his hair, laughs and says, ha ha, it sounds like you've lost another one. Yeah. And Bond pauses and takes a deep breath and pulls Green back up and does not kill him. There's at least that. At least there's some character stuff for Bond there. Character growth. How we've missed you. <laughs> yeah. As it turns out, that was in fact Camille shooting General Madrano. So she got to do that, which is great. But now she's trapped in this flaming room and is flashing back to when she was a little girl stuck in a flaming house. She's not having a particularly good time. Bond saves Green, but just sort of leaves him to his own devices and goes to rescue Camille, which he does by causing <laughs> another explosion. Like part of the wall falls apart and there's another one of these apparently very unstable fuel cells. And so he's like, hide your face. And then he shoots it and it blows the hole open in the side of the building, which allows them to improbably crawl outside. Do you have any idea how dead they would be? So dead. So aside from the like explosion itself, which would immolate them. They're already in a room, an ostensibly closed room, full of flames, consuming all the oxygen in the room. Mm -hmm. Then they blow up a hydrogen fuel cell, <laughs> causing another huge fireball, undoubtedly exhausting all the oxygen in the room, but then rupturing the wall to the air outside, allowing all that fresh air to rush back into the room that they've just released an accelerant into. That's if the pressure wave hasn't already killed them. <laughs> I've seen Backdraft. I know how this works. <laughs> Sorry, I'm calling out the comments again. I'm going to get comments. It's like, if you've seen Backdraft, you have no idea how this works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What's funny to me is that this whole scene, all these explosions are predicated on how unstable the hydrogen fuel cell is. And in a few minutes, we're going to see Bond and Camille drive up and park a car that is clearly legible on the hood is a Ford hydrogen fuel cell concept car. Yeah. <laughs> Ford getting their advertising dollars worth here. Yeah. So they escape the building. They're not going to die. They see Green hobbling off into the desert. And Bond tells Camille, hey, wait here, I got to take care of something. And then we cut to Bond in that SUV in the middle of the desert, and he lets Green out of the car. It's implied that he had previously picked him up already and talked to him. And Green says, you're not going to kill me, are you? I told you everything. I told you everything I know. I gave you all the information you wanted. And Bond's like, no, I'm not going to kill you. But now your company or whatever, your organization knows that you've probably told me stuff and they're looking for you. So I figure I'll just leave you out here where nobody can find you and you can start going for a walk and then he grabs a thing of motor oil from the back of the car and is like here i give you 20 miles before you consider drinking that <laughs> and then he just leaves him there yeah which is pretty grim yeah <laughs> it's very grim 
And then back in the village, Bond drops Camille off and they basically talk about how, you know, they're going to need to not lead a coup, but like lead some kind of a people's revolution. And she's going to have to be at the forefront of that. They're going to have to tear down those dams underwater and see what other damage Green has done and, you know, take back the land for the people. And she's basically going to be a big part of that. And they kiss, which is as far as they get. And that's it. He lets her out of the car and she gets back to work. So the movie's over, right? Well, no, because... Because we then cut to Kazan, Russia, where it is very snowy. Mirroring the very beginning of Casino Royale, Bond is waiting in shadows indoors for somebody to arrive home. And in walks a man and a woman, and the man is Vesper's boyfriend. And the woman, we don't know who that is. Bond holds them at gunpoint and tells them to sit down. He starts talking to the woman and is like, are you Canadian? Which, let me tell you, that went over really well when we saw this in theaters. It was like, <laughs> hey, Canadian. Because she's <laughs> she works for CSIS. Yeah, we're relevant, briefly. We have secret intelligence, too. <laughs> And she's wearing the same love knot necklace that Vesper had. And he's basically like, oh, you're secret intelligence, aren't you? Right. Well, he's using you, by the way, just so you know, you should go talk to your people, let them know you have a mole inside, by the way, also, obviously, because of this whole thing. So you must have a mole. Nice necklace, by the way. He holds up his. He's like, I had a friend who had one just like it. And you can see she does some great face acting. I don't know who yeah. this person is. I don't know what her character name or her actor name. I'll look it up in a moment. But she he does some great face acting of re basically realizing it just sort of comes over her in a wave of like oh my god everything makes sense oh he's completely taken me for a ride holy crap none of his feelings are real i have been completely betrayed i think she also knows that the position she's in bond could probably just kill the both of them because as he lets her go she just says very quietly on the way out the door says thank you and shuts the door behind her <laughs> well she's canadian she's got to be polite about it yeah the character name is Corin, by the way. Oh, thank you. Played by Stana Katik. Who, oh, for, oh, she was in Castle. Right, she plays Kate Beckett in Castle. Oh, of course, yeah. Okay, with Nathan Fillion's. Cool. So she leaves, and we don't see what happens between him and Bond, but we cut to outside where Bond leaves the building and there's a bunch of MI6 guys and M waiting outside. M basically asks him, like, so is he alive? <laughs> And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he told me. He told me what we wanted to know. And according to M, this confirms what she said to Bond at the end of Casino Royale. So we're sort of restating the end of that movie. Mm -hmm. Vesper really did love you. And, you know, it's weird because at the end of Casino Royale, she's like, Vesper did this to save your life. She didn't want to do that. She really did love you. And then this is, see, I was right when I thought that all of this was the case. I told you so. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. M also mentions that Green was found in the desert with two bullets in him and, curiously, motor oil in his stomach, which Bond claims to know nothing about. Yeah. And then Bond has now actually finally moved on and drops that necklace in the ground, and then we get the, like, James Bond beginning with the circle moving across the screen and the gun barrel sequence into the main title graphic of Quantum of Solace and the old-school 007 logo and then into the end credits. Yeah. And now... It really is exactly like you said. The end of Casino Royale is like, okay, now it's James Bond. And then we get Quantum of Solace, which isn't, except it ends with like, okay, now we'll play the theme song for the first time in the movie. We'll do the gun barrel sequence. Okay, now we've got two movies of origin story out of the way. Now. Definitely this time. <laughs> 
Definitely the third movie will just let him be James Bond. It also like does like Skyfall. I quite enjoyed at the time. I look forward to doing the rewatch of it, but that's still like not the same. They tease this notion that it's going to be like, okay, now we're going to do like a real classic Bond film, but with Daniel Craig and we still never get that. Yeah. The thing that gets me, I don't know how well you remember the ending of Skyfall. (laughs) We'll get there next week. (laughs) Right, you're totally right. (laughs) Oh my god. I forgot about that. Yeah, like the last line of dialogue, I think. Oh man. And all of the various things that are set up in the last like two or three minutes of that movie. But anyhow, we'll get there next week. I don't want to tip the hat too strongly, but yeah, now he's truly ready to become James Bond. So that was it. It was a smooth hour and forty-five minutes. Was it though? Oh, no, I mean, it went by quickly. I didn't, it wasn't smooth. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's not, it's not terrible. I don't really like it. It's inoffensive, but it's like, it's not a great Bond film. No, it's not. It's really not. How do we like the pre-title sequence? Born film car chase with Mr. White in the trunk. It's bad. It's not good, is it? I think it's very low i in fact i already know where i'm gonna put it oh yeah yeah the opening for this one goes behind never say never again to me (laughs) wowie zowie that is low i mean never say never again i'm counting the like bond in the training facility doing the things because that's sort of how we rated it at the time yeah that's that is a better more exciting more narratively satisfying opening pre-title scene than this is yeah that's where it goes for me i'm satisfied with that i think the opening of this movie is just dire (laughs) i wasn't gonna go that low and i can't disagree with anything you just said (laughs) is the thing don't feel like you have to join me down at the bottom of the pile but i don't i do not like the opening of this very much no i mean it's not it's not good it's just an action scene that's hard to follow and doesn't tell you anything and then that's it it's over in three minutes yep yeah you know what i will put it down there this honks (laughs) all right good i'm glad we're agreed which is in sharp contrast to where i'm going to put the song because i love this song sometimes i just listen to this song me too now we talked last time about how we're not including the visuals no i know in the in this thing and i do love the visuals but where do you think it lives i'm having a real moment trying to figure that out i'm laughing at myself because i like i know where i want to put it but i don't want to I don't want to demote OHMSS out of the top five. (laughs) I'm having the same. I'm having the same debate. This is the problem. I think like the, the opening title theme for OHMSS slaps so hard and it feels wrong to push it out of the top five. I don't know. I like this. Like I said earlier, this does everything I want a Bond title song, especially a modern Bond title song to do, which is like get an artist who is really, really good at their craft and make a song that sounds cool, that is evocative of the Bond mythos and absolutely has the feeling and sound of like a Bond theme. Like I want to put this at like number two. Like I want to put this really high. It rips like the song rules. It's big, meaty horns and a good bass beat and like that 
the like the sleazy trumpet line and the vocals bang the lyrics are good it's a song that i want to listen to when i'm not watching a bond movie it is easily the title sequence that i'll go back to and watch most often on youtube mm. which maybe that just means it's number number one for me right like i'll go i will watch this opening title sequence just as a youtube video anytime i feel like it which i cannot say for most of the others a lot of them are good songs see now i'm now i'm including the visuals but a lot of them are good songs and i think all five of my top five are good songs yeah i'm doing what i said i wanted to do i'm putting this at number two yeah i think i'm gonna do the same thing it's gonna go behind goldfinger to me and ahead of live and let die i love live and let die so much i know you do the the <laughs> only reason i'm putting it ahead of live and let die is because i find the the up and down of live and let die a little jarring <laughs> oh that's fair that's very that yeah no you're not wrong there by the same token i also find that this song goes a little off the rails vocally towards the end where it just oh at the like now i'm criticizing it but i think this also goes at number two for me yeah i'm comfortable with that okay now the moment of truth arrives yeah i know what range it goes in for me yeah this is in the range of films that are like eh without being actively bad yeah like, I don't even think that, like, Thunderball or Diamonds Are Forever are actively bad. They're just like, you know, like, what do we say Diamonds was? It was tacky, right? It was just like, eh. yeah. But there I was mean. still, yeah, there was still stuff in it that, you know, that I liked. This is like, where do we put movies that are just sort of, like, inoffensive, but also kind of immaterial? Yeah. Lower than that? It's not worse than Die Another Day. No, it's not worse than Die Another Day, I agree. So you actually named the two movies that I was thinking of as comparators, like Thunderball, we just thought Thunderball was boring. Yeah. Right? And like this isn't necessarily boring, but it's from a plot level, it's pretty rote. And from mm -hmm. a of, like from an action and cinematography and characterization point of view, it's just frustrating. <laughs> it just doesn't deliver in a way that I want. But it's like, it's fine. It's not long enough to be boring. <laughs> it's, yep, that's it's true. like I don't get tired of it while I'm watching it. I mostly get frustrated by it because it's so close to being really good. And I think that's why I had such a... Now I'm like articulating my own opinion, I guess. On a podcast dedicated to declaring our opinion about movies. How well, fair you? enough. But I think this movie is almost good. I just wish they'd made every decision differently. <laughs> I can see every choice they made and I can see why they made that choice. And I just wish they'd made it differently. And the result is a movie that's almost really good. All the actors for whom this, all the actors for whom this is their second appearance or would appear again, I think are great. And I really like Olga Kurilenko as Camille. Well, I don't think anybody is like half-assing it on the cast. No, I, Gemma Arterton doesn't make a huge impact on me. I don't dislike her. She doesn't make a huge impact on me. And Matthew Almarek is like, kind of dull for me as a bad yeah. guy but apart from that it's okay i think i've settled where i'm putting it i basically agree with you that the thing that frustrates me is that with all the cast that we've seen we know <laughs> what this looks like when it works yeah and all the amazing locations and the effort that was put into all the action sequences that just like ended up looking how they did when they were finally on the f screen it's just like yeah so this is going ahead of thunderball for me i think this goes between thunderball and the man with the golden gun for me but i think it lives in that neighborhood okay 
This goes much lower for me. There's not that much list below there, Graham. <laughs> so, okay, here's the thing. You, I really, you know, to you listening at home, I, I want to make this really clear. I am putting this above Die Another Day. It is better than Die Another Day. There is a, I think, a huge gulf to me between this movie and Die Another Day. Oh, yeah. But I, I don't actually think that this is better than any of the other ones because all the stuff that I like about this movie is kind of surface. And there's a, just a lot of stuff that, I don't know, I'm never going to want to be like, all right, time to watch a Bond movie? Time for Quantum of Solace. Like, I'm yeah. going to go watch the opening title sequence on YouTube from time to time. I don't want to watch this movie again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm only ever going to watch this movie as a two-parter with Casino Royale after having watched Casino Royale. Yeah. It's pretty unlikely that I'll ever watch this on its own. Yeah, so for me, this is only one place ahead of Dino of the Day. But you at home need to understand that there is a, <laughs> there is a gap in there. A chasm. <laughs> Yeah, between those two movies. Yeah, I, I'm a little softer on it just because, like, I do think it lives in the neighborhood of the man with the golden gun, which I'm not keen on. I think The World Is Not Enough and Tomorrow Never Dies are, they're campy enough and silly enough that the ways they don't make sense are fine, but they, they still have, like, satisfying narrative through lines. It's easy. They feel like Bond movies. Yeah. Thunderball's boring, and I would rather be frustrated than bored. <laughs> That's very true. That's 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 my problem with this movie. It's not even that badly constructed, though I have some big editing complaints that I mentioned. It's just dull to me. It's just like, eh. It's kind yeah. of just not interesting. Yeah. Yeah. In our next episode, we'll be looking at, four years later, the 2012 movie Skyfall, which, I mean, it made a ton of money. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it was a very, very successful outing. And uh, I don't know. I remember it being really good and I want to watch it again. Yeah. I know that, I don't know. There's some, we're, we're getting some really divisive opinions in the, in the comments, which by the way is fine. Anyone listening to this, you're allowed to hold <laughs> your own opinions, but some people really just don't like any of the Craig movies. Uh, yeah. I've noticed that too. Yeah. All of the Craig movies are bad. Like really? No. You're allowed to have your opinion, but really? Yeah. Anyway, I'll be, Curious to rewatch Skyfall with the the eyes of the podcaster who must talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also am really looking forward to it. I, if if nothing else, I remember it being sumptuously shot. So, oh, uh, I mean, cinematographer Roger Deakins <laughs> is I just mm. <laughs> yeah. Anything anything he's filmed is terrific. So, yeah, I'll be looking forward to that. But until then. Uh, that is going to do it for this episode of From Rewatch with Love. So until next time, I want to say, of course, thank you to Matt for doing this with me. Thank you. I want to shout out to Matt Griffiths for doing the video editing on these. Do check out the video production if you have the time and opportunity to watch them on YouTube. Thanks to Featherweight for the art. And thanks to Heather, who does podcast admin for us. And of course, thanks to all of you for your kind support of what we do here at Loading Ready Run, be it this podcast or our other projects by giving us your support at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun or becoming a member here on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast will return. Mm-hmm.